With three weeks to go, what can fantasy owners do to get an edge? I'll ask Todd Zola, who writes for Masters Ball, Rotowire, and ESPN, and has a show every Saturday morning on MLB Network Radio, about the last three weeks and a whole lot more, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host, from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, September the 18th. It's show number 27 of the 2020 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature interview with Todd Zola, who writes for Masters Ball, Rotowire, and ESPN, and has a show every Saturday morning on MLB Network Radio. He'll be discussing roster planning for the last three weeks, chasing those decimals, some young pitchers, and projecting 2021. We'll also have our Market Watch Player News reports. Harold Nichols has coverage of the National League, including Walker Bueller, Max Fried, Dylan Carlson, and more. And Ray Murphy has news from the American League, including Glaber Torres, Teoscar Hernandez, Alex Bregman, and more. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In Hey, Texas. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Boston third baseman Tristan Cassis. And in extra innings, I'll be talking about applying Todd Zola's end-of-season research. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Freddie Freeman is the hottest player in the game. We gotta talk some baseball. In case you missed it, on Thursday night, Atlanta first baseman Freddie Freeman hit two home runs against the Nationals, one off Austin Voth in the fourth and another off Will Harris in the seventh. Freeman now has 10 homers for the year, and because both of the Dingers were two-run models, he has 42 RBIs for the season to lead all of baseball. In the 10 games since the start of September, Freeman has stepped up to the plate 46 times, and you could say he has really stepped up to the plate. He's delivered five home runs, tied for third in September behind Ronald Acuna, who has six, and Adam Duval, who has eight, and yes, all of the top three from Atlanta. He has 21 RBIs, by far the most in the month, 10 runs scored, tied for six, and a slash line of a 395 batting average, a 500 on base percentage, he's sixth, 895 slugging, he's fifth, and a 1395 OPS puts him fifth as well. For the 2020 season, Freeman is leading baseball with 42 RBIs, as I mentioned, second in on-base percentage at 450, third in OPS at 1057. He's top 10 in offensive B-War at 1.9, batting average at 333, slugging at 635, and total bases at 99. And he's seventh in $5.5 value among hitters using Baseball HQ's valuations, a $31 player. It's going to be very interesting next year to see where Freddie Freeman goes in drafts. In the first inning of this Friday Full Edition, part one of our feature expert interview with Todd Zola, who writes for Masters Ball, Rotowire, and ESPN, and has a show Saturday mornings on Major League Baseball Network Radio. Todd, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. It's been a little while. Yeah, good to be back with you, PD. Has been a while. Yes, uh, but I know you've been keeping busy, uh, kind of the king of all fantasy media. You've got a lot of uh, outlets for your wisdom and counsel. Uh, what all you been doing? Uh, 
Well, the uh, you mentioned the uh, media, so I've been doing a Saturday show with my RotoWire partner Clay Link on MLB Network Radio, not the Fantasy Channel, the act, the uh, the actual radio. The I'm sorry, MLB Network Radio. We we uh, we were taken, not so much taken off. That's not right, but. Uh, the, the fantasy channel, as everybody knows, has transitioned to football. So the the foot the uh, the baseball show I was doing with Jeff Erickson is uh, you know is, is now a football show, but uh, still do a podcast with Clay and show up on a couple of guest pods here and there. Just did Derek Van Riper's uh, with the Athletic. Obviously, uh, happy to talk with you every month or so, and doing the regular writing at RotoWire and ESPN. Actually, this is uh, this is my the, the it, never an easy three weeks. But the next three weeks are probably my lightest three weeks of the year, primarily because I don't have to do my rest of season projections because they're, you know, they're already so convoluted as it is. Uh, it's just, there's just no sense of figuring out playing time for two and a half to three weeks worth of data when it's completely up in the air. I want to talk to you more about that in a second, but first, uh, how many teams are you playing this year, and how did they split between March and July? Um, I, I, I'm playing a few less than normal. It's got to be double digits, but I'm not exactly sure of the number because there's a lot of a uh, couple of best balls and and some no trading leagues and that sort of thing. The uh, did several drafts in in December, and you know before before we knew how dangerous this all was, and uh, did. I think what did I? I only did a couple of three drafts in July. Derek Van Riper's uh, uh, Triple Crown charity and endeavor, and a couple of Sirius XM leagues. But I was doing, I was actually doing really well, and I'm still upper half in just about all my leagues. But I was doing much better, so I've been been leaking points in September. So it's, uh, and I know you know normally you'd be saying, well, if you started out well, things could turn around, or you can work to make things turn around. But it's going to be tough in two weeks to make up some of the lost ground. So I'm happy to, you know, happy to finish in the top half. But you know, for a while, it's looking like a really good year. Well, I noticed you and I are pretty close in the Great Fantasy Baseball Invitational, which you won the overall last season. You and I are both in the low to mid 30s. I think last time I checked, you were 34th or 35th. I'm right at 30, uh, down actually from I was in the mid 20s not long ago because of the great amounts of movement that take place in an overall uh, context. But what have been the big differences for you in TGFBI between this season when you're probably going to be you know still top five percent but uh and last year when you won yeah i, I, I was i was as high as 13 14 15 16 not not a couple weeks ago i think what you you know in any you you want to do this in any league let alone just a tgfbi with an overall you want to you want to do well you want to keep your lineup fortified you want to you know replacements and fab and and be smart about management and then you want to then you just have that one maybe two ridiculous week where everything goes right everybody hits a homer everybody steals a base every pitcher throws a shutout and suddenly you know you do the, you do your leap up last year in the TGFBI that happened for me in August well this year August doesn't well August exists but four and a half months into the season doesn't exist so I mean I think I was 30th or so you know be, around July or August last year and then like I said had that great two-week stretch so you just have to hope for that early two-week stretch. So, I mean, we're both, you know, you mentioned upper 5%, 10%. So we've probably been pretty fortunate with respect to injuries or or or, or, or COVID-19 affected players and, and timing and the whatnot um, 
just to, to be at that point. But, you know, we're both, we both probably have teams that could get that stretch if it was a six month season, but unless it happens soon, you know, we'll be, we'll be commiserating over our, you know, upper third finish, but congratulating the champions next time we talk. In the Raz Slam best ball, it's kind of a draft and mostly hold. It was supposed to be a, a, a cut line type league, but the, the uh, shortened season put that uh, on hold. You're sixth overall in that league. Do you think you can make up, I think it's 190 or 200 or so points over three weeks in this format and take the, take the title again? Yeah, I actually do because I've been, uh, there was a recent fab. I'm not saying I will, but I think it's possible. I was second a couple days ago because of the, because of the way that the, the cut line best ball scoring goes, if you uh, if you have a bunch of pitchers going, you're going to jump up that day. And if you don't have a bunch of pitchers going, you're going to fall back because someone else that's close to you is going to have a bunch of pitchers. So if you look, I think second through sixth is really, really, really close. And then the uh, first place has got a bit of a jump. However, that's not to say that no one in the top six or whatever it is can't have that really good week and jump up and and take it all. So, I mean, it's plausible. I don't, you know, I mean, I don't, not a betting man. I don't know what my odds would be, but I mean, it it is it is possible. I need some real I need some real help with pitching because I'm uh, I think I have the I had the top offense in the entire contest last time I looked, and then I'm just kind of knocking on wood that my pitchers come through. Uh, a couple of them are uh, lost Merrill Kelly, who may sound like geez, just Merrill Kelly, but look what Merrill Kelly was doing. Right. Uh, you know, so I have a couple of other uh, pitchers that aren't uh, either either out of the rotation or just uh, not. You know, Rick Porcello. I think you know Rick Porcello over the course of an entire season. This is back when we thought it was twenty six weeks. You know what? Out of twenty six starts, thirty starts, he's going to have four or five or six that he that he does well. Well, he only has eight starts or whatever, and. He hasn't had many events, you know, so some of those way I manage pitching hasn't worked out, but I love the competition. Uh, thanks to guys at Raz Ball for putting it on. I hope they do it again next year and we can, and we can do it, uh, you know, and see a full 26 weeks worth of, you know, hopefully the season cooperates too. And we can, uh, cause I, I, I really do like this best ball slash cut line uh, point scoring format. So I think it's fun. It is fun. And uh, the, Something that about it that really bugged me with the short season is that I had a plan that I think would have worked, but it doesn't work very well in a short season like this. <laughs> I I just eschewed uh, drafting any starting pitchers. I think I only got two, and I just loaded up with closers and proto closers and stuff, thinking that in any given week uh, a bunch of relief pitchers will amass some saves if you've got the closer and the closer right. to be and all that kind of stuff. And uh, and starting pitchers are you know they're fairly dramatically variable and in any given week you know it, it's just not that helpful to have them and uh i really would have liked to see if it worked in a short season it doesn't work because uh, anybody who's got starting pitchers that do do well just zooms out in front of you and you just don't have enough volume to make up the difference i, I think that uh I, I hope they run the league again next year i think i might try something similar as far as the strategy goes uh with I just think starting pitchers don't work in this format. And uh, when you look at the hitting and pitching points, uh, at year sixth, you have 4,200 points. 3,200 of them are hitting points, and only 1,000 are pitching points. So it seems like you really do want to try to load up on hitting in this league and that pitching, there may be other ways to manage it than just the usual, you know, grab uh, grab Max Scherzer in the second round or first round. Well, you see, you, you say Max Scherzer. I said, I mentioned earlier, I think I have the most hitting, hitting points in the entire contest, and I drafted Max Scherzer. So I agree 
with a lot of what you're saying, but I don't think you completely avoid starting pitching. Um, I wasn't going to pass. I mean, the, the points that the starters give you are just silly compared to the rest of the uh, everybody else. Then I pounded hitting, and then I I I, avo- I I agree with you on closers, and I have a lot of closers in there. When you do close this year, just do you get lucky? Did you take the ones that came through? Or did you take the ones that didn't come through? You know, did you take Kirby H? Did you take Liam Hendricks? Uh, and then I, at the end, I wanted to uh, just just load up on, you know, starters who I know. Are, I mentioned Rick Porcello, Martin Perez, guys I know are going to pitch, but aren't going to be. You know, you don't want them in a roto, but they're going to sneak in every other every third week with a good performance. So in a best ball, they jump in there. So. Um, I agree with mostly what you're saying, but I don't think you can avoid starters. I think you need to fill in at the back end with some with some guys like you know some you know streaming types in a regular league. That's fair enough. And when I think through this, I, I'm uh, I'm probably going to move that way and not be so doctrinaire about it. The reason I went that particular path is that there was a Twitter conversation going on with Michael Salfino, whom we we both know, and uh, and a couple of other guys who I really respect. And we got into this idea of how do you properly calibrate roster planning for the best ball format where you have all 40 guys that you can uh, and you don't have to worry about when a guy has his good week you don't have to worry about should I start him this week because if he has a good week you get the good week and it's as simple as that and that's an attractive and very interesting strategic twist on how we usually plan our uh, our fantasy rosters and then like I said I'd like to try it again Uh, something you said uh, a few minutes ago about the ability to move even in uh, in NFBC leagues and in these kinds of leagues and how much you're bouncing around even in a, a day or two. When I look at the, the best ball format, I've just decided I'm only ever going to look once a week because it's just right. too nerve-wracking on a day-by-day basis because, as you said, you get one of your opponents that you're right near happens to get a guy who has two home runs and six RBIs in a game. That's enough to propel him pretty significantly up the standings because that's a lot of points. But... In the rotisserie style, uh, I'm wondering about the effect of the short season on the decimal categories. Ordinarily, people think our decimal categories in Roto Leagues get all but locked in as we get two or three weeks from the end of the season, but this isn't an ordinary season because we're also barely five weeks into the season. How much headway do you think we can still make in the decimals on offense, batting average, or on base? Right. Uh, th- I know this is something we've talked about in in the past, and I, I, I because you said people still think I haven't convinced everybody, and I may not have even convinced you. Who's to say? But the fact remains, and it's not just you know a narrative. Uh, I follow this every season. The NFPC and the TGFBI is run on NFPC, so people can look on that if they're not in the NFPC. It shows the movement within each category each week, and there is more movement even up to the final week. In the ratios than there is in any in, than in the counting stats, it's it's it, and, and, and whip whip is the one that moves the most, and I've done studies on it, I've done research on it, and there's a couple of different reasons. Um, the first reason is let me interrupt you uh, because I'm I'm going to give you the. Uh common thinking and this is the way I think about it too so uh, I'm I'm always happy to be shown that I'm making an error because it'll improve my play down the road sure. but it seems like when you're 100 innings uh, 100 total innings on your roster at the start of the season and whatever your whip or ERA happens to be it's very easy to move that number because you can amass more innings and overall whip will adjust 
versus when you're three weeks from the end and you've got a thousand innings under your belt, whatever happens, you're not changing the ratio enough to make any kind of big move just because the denominator is just so big that it's hard to move the ratio with any kind of uh, vigor. Right. Well, the, the, the fact is you don't need to move it much. The ratio categories, it's, if, you, if you normalize, if you give each category the same number of units and then redistribute the standings uh, within the, so whatever however you want to do it make each category a thousand units redistribute you know and then and then prorate or whatever the, you know each category to so that the sum from top to bottom is a thousand you'll find that batting average ERA and WHIP are the most tightly condensed the top to bottom they're just the most condensed so that's just the way to, one way to look at it is they're just more tightly bunched the second reason why you can move in these categories is. The, the the ratio categories your opponents can come down they could have a they could they could get a uh, uh, trying to, there's been <laughs> there's been several pitchers lately who I can use as an example example Sonny Gray Anthony Del Scafani guys who just have those uh, hopefully didn't have Jordan Yamamoto uh, in your lineup Matt no, Boyd not, I'm not sure. yeah Matt Boyd so one of you know so your your opponent can come down to you so you don't even have to do a thing and you can gain points. The other, the other reason, and you're 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 somewhat you're you're familiar with SGP uh, valuation methodology. Sure. The SGP for home runs is usually what five or six. That in sounds that range. right. Yeah, it's something. It's yeah, in there, yeah, RBIs. It's in the double digits. So what this means is, in order to gain a point on the average, I mean, it in this on the average. Uh, the last week, you know, we're gonna, the standings are, you know, you need to you need to hit five more home runs. Than the, than the team that happens to be in front of you. Five home runs is a lot in a week. It's not easy to gain a point in, in the counting category. It's not easy for your team to hit five more homers or get 15 more RBI or steal four, five, or six more bases. And it has to be then the team in front of you to get that point. Uh, now, as we also have discussed in various uh, and sundry other uh, you know, applications, it all depends where you are in the standings. Not everybody is five home runs. It's not, you know, there's some that are, you know, some leagues where five home runs will get you three points. So it all depends on where you are in the standings. It's in, in but the point being, and, and I challenge people that are in the TGFBI, because I know a lot of, a lot of you guys and gals listen, listen to this podcast, you know, check, check the standings last week. Check, well, this week, this year isn't, isn't applicable because what I was going to say this year is, not, I mean, because you don't have the innings uh, amassed, you're going to get several points are available in all the categories. Because this this year, you can hit five more home runs. Well, I mean, not so much you can hit five more homers, but um, with the, with the with the with the fewer innings, you can move a lot more in ERA. So I actually think you may be, you may move more in ERA this year just because you don't have the denominator built up of at bats or innings pitched. Whereas it's still really hard to hit five or six more homers than the, than the competitor. So you may not be able to gain as many points in, uh, in the, in the home run category, but the, the flip side of that is because the season's only a third of the length, uh, maybe the Delta between teams hasn't developed that much yet. So teams are, you know, maybe, you know, I think the SGP, if you will, for this season, I don't think you'd end up using SGP for the season after only 60 games, but I don't think that, you know, I think the different, the SGP will be two or three for home runs and stolen bases. So the same five homers, which you get you one point last year may get you two or three this year. 
And I, I have noticed that uh, in my leagues. I'm looking at my uh, Tout American League right now. If I were to get three additional home runs, I'd gain four points. Yeah. If I were to gain, uh, let's see, three wins, I would gain four points. It's like that. But the uh, ERA and ratio categories are really, except for I'm, I'm tied with a guy. But uh, other than that, the guy behind me is like 15 or 16 points back. The guy in front of me is uh, maybe 35 points ahead of me. I'm talking about like 350 to 390 kind of thing. And I wonder right. if it's the case that as the season progresses, it gets harder to move in this counting stats and easier to move in the de in the decimal stats rather than that being a constant thing throughout the year. It's like uh, it, maybe, maybe what we need people to understand is you can move at any time, but where we are in the season might have an effect on what categories are easiest to move in at that time, and again, depending on where you are in them. Yeah, I think where you are is paramount. I and then everything else. Is, yeah, I agree. I think. Yeah. And, I mean, then, and then, and you then, know, yeah. But the point being, don't categorically dismiss. Well, this year, again, people aren't doing it in ratios because they think they think you can move. But this time next year, knock on wood, we have a regular full season. Don't categorically dismiss the, the opportunity to gain or lose points in the ratios. It all depends on where you are. And again, it doesn't take much. Um, just if, if you go back and look at some of previous season standings that are available, it may not be your team, but check to see so, how close some of the other ratio you can see, like a 1.239, 1.241. You're going to see a lot of third decimal places separating teams. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Todd Zola from Rotowire and Masters Ball and ESPN and uh, now Major League Baseball's Network Radio. A uh, man of all media, Todd, uh, it's great to have you back. In your Z-Files column at Rotowire, you had an interesting take on your usual pitcher rankings. Uh, you highlighted some young pitchers who had two start weeks coming up to burnish their Rookie of the Year credentials. In general, Todd, how comfortable are you rostering young pitchers, especially first-year guys? Yeah, it's uh, not very. A couple this year, a couple guys this season appear to be uh, special, and I think that we, I think, the the circumstances have actually blessed us with some some players playing that may not have played just because uh, you, you can keep your guy in the alternate training facility. Who thought we'd be saying that all year long? Or at least get them some uh, tutelage in facing major league pitching, even if you're starting the clock. The you know the Detroit Tigers have started the clock on Casey Mize and Tarek Skubal. Whether or not they would have done so. On Matt Manning, who's now hurt, remains to, well not remains to be seen, but we'll never know. Uh, but I do think you know some of these teams are advancing their pitchers because they want to win, like the Chicago White Sox and even the Miami Marlins. But I do think we're seeing a few more rookies than normal, uh, just 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 because how much how much learning can they do? How much evaluation can you do facing the same guys on you know on the alternate playing fields? But to sort of answer the question. I'm not. I'm rather. I'm much rather dance with the devil I know, which kind of prohibits so much rookie pitching. Um, you know, I'll, I'll do the numbers. Normally, we have minor league numbers, and we have some very good. You know, I'll, I'll rely on Baseball HQ's uh, minor league uh, uh, analysts, and and RotoWire's James Anderson's one of the best. So I will. I will rely on on their information. Um, but it, it may even just be the state of pitching nowadays. It's just so poor that it's almost as if you, you, you're better off with the devil you don't know. I mean, you know this guy's terrible. You don't know what the rookie is. So go with the rookie instead. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm more open to it than I have been in previous seasons. 
but uh, you know, w- w- I'm curious to see next year. Um, you know, not again, knocking wood. There is a next year. We may have we may have stripped the uh, we may have thinned the mer- the herd. I don't know how many good pitching prospects there still are, but uh, it'll be interesting to see where some of these guys get drafted. Uh, it'll come come next come next spring. The five pitchers you mentioned uh, started with Tristan McKenzie of Cleveland, but also included Ian Anderson of Atlanta, Christian Javier in Houston, Sixto Sanchez in Miami, and Colby Allard of Texas. I would mm-hmm. be real comfortable just uh, saying Colby Allard's not in the same kind of level as the rest of these guys. Uh, how would you rank the the five pitchers if you were maybe starting a keeper roster next year? Okay, again, given a lot of my opinion is based upon Again, the, the people we just I just sort of alluded to, HQs, minor league people, and, and, and Rotowire, amongst others. I think I got got to put Sixto Sanchez at the top. And my eye, just the eye test, he just looks like he's in control. He's not overmatched. So you love the park. So Sixto, Sixto Sanchez. And then I'm going to go Ian Anderson, and that's more out of pedigree. And but noting that Tristan McKenzie, I mean, I could if I can call him two A and two B, I would. Uh, Cleveland just has a knack, seems to have a knack for pitching. McKenzie uh, seems to, again, he, he passes the eye test as far as, um, I think I read somewhere today where the two of them, and I wish I could credit who said it, um, I, I f- should have done that, sort of just skipped over the thrower stage and directly into the pitching stage. Um, next you know, next would be Christian Javier, and then, uh, as you mentioned, Allard. I think Allard can still develop. I like the fact that it's at the better park for him now and not Globe Light uh, Field. I'm sorry, Globe Light Park. I think he's got a chance. Any any softball has a chance. But sure, he's not, you know, he's not in the same class as the previous four. Are there any other young pitchers that have caught your eye this year that uh, aren't didn't happen to be making two starts this week, so didn't get included in the mention? Yeah, I think I alluded to him earlier, Dane Dunning of uh of the White Sox, he, 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 his debut was the same as, as Casey Mize. And I know they both kind of hit the wall in the fifth inning of, of that game a couple of weeks back, but it's reminding me one of those games. And we tell, you know, we were at the AFL, we hear scouts say this all the time. Uh, when they go to a, a game uh, to see a specific player and they walk away, you know, more, more intrigued by somebody else. So I think everybody wanted to watch that game for Casey Mize, Casey Mize. And quite frankly, for four innings, Dane Dunning, Outpitched them. I mean, four inning, you know, four inning sample. Uh, then they again, they both kind of hit the wall. But uh, Dane Denning and and Dunning didn't come out of nowhere. He's a good prospect, very good prospect. But he just to me, he also looks composed. Looks like he knows what he's doing. I like I like the what the White Sox have done as far as Yasmani Grandal and 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 as getting uh, the the framer in there, etc. So I, I think that he's his his um his chances to be included in this tier you know, of the rookies next year is very strong. Where do you stand on a guy like Tariq Skubal? Um, I, you know, again, it's, it's mostly from, you know, there's some pedigree. I know he had the fantastic spring and was likely to break camp with the Tigers, regardless of, uh, you know, of, of the rookie designation and playing time, uh, service time, et cetera, which, which says a lot. I think, uh, you know, any of those, any of those sort of middle prospects can go either way. You know, the, 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 you can jump up or you can fall back. And he, you know, he had the talent to, to, to make it to the next year. Uh, you know, I'm still somewhat, I'm, I'm, in, I'm encouraged, but I'm not, I'm not going to be, 
I don't think we're going to be talking in March and you're going to ask me for my, you know, sleepers. I don't at this point anyway, I don't think Scooble will be, you know, when you're looking for a streaming, when you're looking for your fifth starter, you got to get Tarek Scooble. I don't know that I'll be saying that. I've been noticing a lot of uh, articles in the tout sort of media talking about uh, why I made the mistake of of downgrading Shane Bieber. I, I don't know if you're following along with these uh, Mia culpas that we've been seeing all over the place, but what was it about Shane Bieber that people just got so wrong this year, or was it something that he just did right that nobody was expecting? Yeah, you, you can do that. Well, we're not seeing the same out of Fernando Tatis, but the, uh, a similar, I mean, a, a similar type of question slash answer can be offered. The thing with Bieber, and the thing about it is, it's still happening this season, is he gives up extraordinarily hard contact. And that's normally a bad, bad thing. Now, granted, he doesn't walk many, and he strikes out a bunch, so it doesn't affect him. But if if the if the peripherals waned, if he if he didn't strike out as many and the control got a you know took a little bit of a nick, then the hard hit balls would uh, you know burn him more. But this season he he hasn't. He's taken a step up, a matter of fact, in peripherals. And he's still giving up hard contact, but it just it doesn't doesn't hurt him just because. He's you know doesn't walk anybody and you know, he strikes so many guys out that so he gets up a solo homer now and again you know big whoop as I used to say back in the seventies but uh, you know th- so that that was the thing you know, people were caught ca- and I think correctly cautious about about the hard hit rate if it was anybody else with such a high hard hit rate we'd be saying avoid them but because it's Shane Bieber and the strikeouts etc so to me the question isn't isn't um, you know w- you know or the concern isn't you know, the question isn't, you know, uh, why does Shane Beaver, you know, give up such hard hit? It's just how the heck do batters hit the ball so hard when he's so good? I don't know. Do they sit on, is he so good that they're just sitting on guessing? And if they guess right, they can whack it. And if they don't guess right, strike three. I don't know. It's just such an odd combination that you never, you never walk anybody and he, he such swing and miss stuff. But when a batter hits it, he, he, he barrels it. It's just weird. You know, I wondered about, uh, I, I did see the uh, the mention of the, all the hard hit contact that uh, came up in discussions of Bieber preseason, and that was kind of the justification people used for, for saying that they didn't trust his, uh, his performance, they were leery of rostering him and so forth. But when I look at the hard hit contact data, you know, there's lots of good pitchers on this list right at the top of it. You Darvish, who's having a terrific year, he's giving up almost 45% hard contact. Garrett Cole's around 43%. Aaron Savali, uh, interestingly enough, also of Cleveland, 42%. Uh, Lucas Giolito, who's having a pretty good year, is up around 38-39%. DeGrom's around 38-39%. Could it be that the wisdom of watching for hard contact is maybe not what it should be that there are more important things going on here as you mentioned obviously strikeout rate walk rate that kind of stuff and that if, if you're giving up hard contact and maybe it isn't necessarily so bad as long as it's hard contact in the right areas of you know ground balls is not not hard hit fly balls and not pulled and that kind of stuff i think what the difference is uh, or, or what the, I think hard contact is always bad, but I think, and I don't know what the denominator should be. There's, you know, there's people out there uh, that are very much into this stuff, understand statistics more, but I bet if you did a hard contact per plate appearance, something to that, like that, where all these strikeouts and all these walks are baked in a denominator, I'll bet you that 
it, you know, the, the, the guys that we're talking about near the top of the list are suddenly, you know, excelling because they're just, they're, there's so many plate appearances where batters aren't even making contact that the percent drops. Um, I'm, I'm pretty, you know, mentioning all those players, it almost has to be, I'm mean, again, narrative, it's, it's an anecdotal, but you have to think these guys, you know, Garrett Cole so good, Shane Bieber so good, Hugh Darvis is so good, I just have to guess. I have no shot. I have no chance if I just go up there. I have to try to guess, guess, you know, guess pitch and guess zone. And if I guess right, I get a hit. If I don't guess right, I'm done. And, you know, so I, I it almost, you almost think that, you know, being so good is works against these guys in that nature because the batters are forced to try to figure out what they're going to pitch. Um, so, but yeah, if you make up and, you know, a lot of guys to the pitcher list who I, you know, I, we're, I know we both respect Nick Pollock and uh, Alex, uh, Alex fast, et cetera. I'll bet if they, maybe there even exists a metric of hard contact per batter faced, maybe the one to use, and maybe I'll even run it myself. I'll bet these guys that now at the top of the hard contact board are uh, drop a lot, drop way far down. I did a thing a couple of years ago, and I've been doing it ever since at Baseball HQ and then on my own hook, uh, looking at outcomes across the board for pitchers as percentages of bat- of batters faced, as you say, of, pl- of plate appearances. And that is how many plate appearances end up in strikeouts, not what percentage a- end up in strikeouts, and so forth, all the way across, including contact. If you assume that soft and medium ground ball contact is good, then put it in a good category for pitchers. Strikeouts mm-hmm. obviously are good. Infield flies, obviously good. Uh, soft and medium hit fly balls, obviously good. And line drives and, and most kinds of hard contact, obviously bad. But I think you're right that if we did take that approach saying i want to know what the percentages are as outcomes of all batters faced i bet you that these guys fall off pretty dramatically because i think the hard contact rate as it's commonly measured is what percentage of balls that were contacted got contacted hard and that's not really the right question Right, and it, it, the numbers still may be it may not be perfectly perfectly representative, because you know a, a walk doesn't beef up the because they're not walking very many. It doesn't beef up the batter face, but the lack of walks means there's fewer base runners on, which means less damage is done on these fewer times of the hard hit balls. If I'm saying if I'm making, I don't know, I don't, I'd have to think about how to incorporate that into the a formula or a metric if you will because you know a, a pitcher doesn't walk batters is actually going to be penalized in if it's paid plate appearances because not many of those plate appearances are walks so um maybe maybe it's have to maybe you have to subtract walks out of it i left that walks, way sorry I, I left walks in because they're just a bad outcome and what, what I did at the end of the process was I said, what percentage of batters faced for this pitcher ended up being good outcomes and what percent ended up being bad outcomes? And I, ag- I admit it was fairly arbitrary about saying what good outcomes are and bad outcomes are. But in general, I could justify it by saying, you know, uh, BABIP on these types of, of hit balls are, are, is quite low. Home run rates on these type of hit balls are non-existent. So I'm going to say that a, that a medium hit fly ball is just a good outcome for a pitcher. I know sometimes they drop in and, you know, maybe if it's right over by the line, it's going to end up being a double right. and it's not good. But in general, medium contact fly balls are a good outcome for pitchers. And all at the end of the day, there was a 100% total of what went on in, every, in all of the, of the batters faced. And most of them are good outcomes for pitchers and bad outcomes for hitters because the opposite is just true on either side. And you can 
stack rank the pitchers and the hitters by the quality of outcome as a percentage of everything that they did out there with a pretty good degree of accuracy. And I'm looking at Shane Bieber's list, by the way. He's only at 31% hard contact this year anyways. He's not even on the first page of the leaderboard. It's like okay, that's dropped. 50th <laughs> that's overall. That's dropped over his past it, couple. Yeah. It, it may have. And he's in company with guys like uh, Dallas Koichel and uh, Brandon Woodruff, who's have was having a pretty good year. Trevor Bauer, who's been mentioned as a Cy Young candidate. So it could be that maybe, uh, as you said, we need to recalibrate how we incorporate the idea of hard contact into pitcher assessment. Yeah. I mean, we don't have to dwell, but I, I am going to, I think I'm, I need a Z files topic this week. I think I'm going to do that. I think I'm going to take hard contact and the denominator is going to be batter's face minus walks because if you're not subtracting many walks, the batter's face remains high. If you are subtracting a bunch of walks, it, it reduces. So when you do the percentage, it helps if you want the lower percentage. So by taking fewer, taking fewer away out of the denominator, it's going to help guys that don't walk. So I don't know how predictive or how what what the correlation might be or what it will correlate to, but I am going to take a look at a uh, hard contact. And uh, again, that's well at this point, it's less subjective than it's been, but it still it still has to be a, a cutoff or whatever whatever is whether it be exit velocity, whatever it must be. Whatever, there is still a cutoff. I mean, there has to be. So it's there's going to be some weird outliers that that happen to have a lot of contact right near that cutoff. But either way, just to see what the to see what it looks like, um, unless I come up with something to help people win in the next two weeks, because this also could be an could be an off season study. Yeah. Um, but uh, we we shall, we shall see. And there's also the, the whole subjectivity angle of the, of the data I was using was from Baseball Info Solutions, where mm-hmm. the hard, soft, medium contact was just graded by a couple right. of guys in the press box. And uh, for me, it, it always worked out to be actually fairly helpful because when I was using StatCast data, even, the, even like barrels and exit velocity plus launch angle or trying to figure out all of those permutations, at some point you when you're using numbers like that, you just have to set a set a, a dividing right. line. At eighty nine point nine is medium contact, ninety point oh is is hard contact. Really, you know, exactly. And, and as soon as you start trying to be that precise, then you start raising questions of, well, okay, where should the line be? And the answer is, it's not a line; it's a band, a right. sort of a band across the across the exit velocities. And I think they tried to address that with the whole idea of barrels, where the velocity combines with the launch angle to be a hard hit ball in in essence. And I think that could work too, but uh, I'm perfect. I was perfectly content with hard, medium, soft as baseball info, info solutions was scoring it because it worked for me. And the results came out with, uh, you know, they passed the smell test, the Clayton Kershaw's and, and uh, Jacob deGrom's of the world were pretty good in my little method. And the, uh, you know, other guys down at the bottom should have been down at the bottom. And there was very few guys who were in one place that should have been in the other. Very, very few guys. And Whenever I'm doing something like this, that that's kind of uh, I always want to have a, a reasonable chance of passing the smell test, even in this day of COVID, when sometimes you can't smell anything. Yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. Um, and I think the purpose for doing any of these studies is to find those outliers, and not to say that this guy is this or this guy is that, but it's just to put them under the microscope to try to find out why they're an outlier. Is it real or is it not? It's just don't unequivocally say, "Oh, this guy's." you know, came up with the Kershaw's, he's, he's that good. No, he deserves further review. 
is, is I think the better way to approach it because not everything captures everything. So, you know, what are we missing? Or, or, or maybe you find out, geez, you know what, uh, this guy is that good or this guy is that bad. But to me anyway, any of these kind of studies, they don't just, you just don't decree the result. You need to look into some of these players more. I mentioned a moment ago, uh, Trevor Bauer is also down fairly low in the uh, in the hard contact allowed list, at least among qualified pitchers. Uh, Trevor Bauer's having a terrific year. Been hearing his name in the in the Cy Young conversation, although his controversial public persona, I think, will work against him because <laughs> some voters they do they hold that against uh, guys they 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 don't like talkative guys right. they don't like controversial guys, especially guys who have very controversial opinions about some of the stuff that goes on within baseball. It's like everybody should just shut up and go along with the uh, go along with the program. But what do you think of Trevor Bauer, who's had to, to be candid a fairly up and down career, great year, bad year, great year, bad year type of thing. Yeah, um, you know, I'm a you know, we talk. I'm a I'm a numbers guy. I trust systems. I trust numbers. That's just the way I'm trained. The way I'm wired. If there's anybody out there who I think can you know turn it on and turn it off because he wants to, because he puts his mind to it, it seems to be Trevor Bauer. And what's you know, we we talk about projections and three year averages. It, you go up, down, up, down. Two of the past three years heading into 2020 were down, with a great year in the middle. Uh, next year, and how we can talk about how we treat the shortened season, but two of the three years heading into 2021 are going to be really good. Right. So even even organically, the baseline is going to be higher. So uh, you know, I know you in all cases you just distill it down to skills because the outcomes aren't the true thing, and the skills are never quite as bad as the outcomes look, and the you know, or or, or never quite as good as the outcomes look either. So that helps push it to the middle a little bit, but yeah. So even, even without anything, but still having, I, I'm not going to just rely on the three year. I just think Bauer is, is I think he, baseball, you know, over 162 games, just, you know, it, talent comes out. I honestly, and, and maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Maybe I need to think more like this. I don't know. But I think he, when he puts his mind, you know, the old, when you put your mind to something, you can do anything. I think, I guess he, I think he wanted to pitch better this year and he is. And actually, the knock you, you read about, especially or or when you when you're watching games and there's an old ball player in the booth, uh, a lot of the accusations that are leveled at Trevor Bauer is he thinks too much about what he's doing out there because of his connection with driveline and and uh, what his connection yeah. with engineering and those kinds of things. They say there's a lot of old ball players. They say you shouldn't be thinking so much out there, and. You know, I've never understood that. Why wouldn't you want to think about your craft? You know, it's it seems ludicrous on its face. I know what they mean, though, because there's a certain amount of you just have to trust muscle memory to do the job you're doing. And I think I think that's far more true of hitting than it is of pitching, frankly, because it's I just think hitting's way more difficult. But let's move on, Todd. Uh, you mentioned something right. that I've been talking with a lot of my projections guys that I've had on the show, Ray and Ariel Cohen, and. Uh, how are you going to incorporate 60 games in 2020 when you're when you're doing your modeling for 2021? Uh, been thinking about it. I don't, you know, it's I'm not exactly sure. Um, it's going to be tough just because we're not. It's not an apples to apples comparison. We're not. It's not 162 games starting out in April, where it's a little bit cold, coming off of a regular spring training. You know, it's it, you, okay. So you adjust for the weather. I mean, it, it, even so, it, there's a lot of. It's just not apples to apples. So, what I do know, what I, you know, what I, what I'm sure about is, 
I mean, I do this anyway. If a, if a batter has 200 plate appearances one year and 600 plate appearances the next, um, I don't, I, I don't equal them. I don't make them, you know, I don't normalize them. I mean, leave it to 200 and 600. I'll, I'll attach the, the, the appropriate weight as far as, uh, most recent seasons, et cetera. So just the fact that people, uh, players are getting one third fewer plate appearances, it's just going to automatically, uh, reduce the pull, reduce the influence of 2020 on, uh, on, on numbers. Now, now it, having, having said that, again, having to distill it down to the skill level, I'm going to do more subjective tweaking than ever. If, I mean, if I feel a player has actually leaped, leapt up in skill, if I feel that skill is improved or has declined, I'll need to adjust it, whether I weight his three-year weighting average differently or how about I go about doing it yet remains to be seen. But there are certain players who I think even in these two months have demonstrated improved skills and deserve those to be accounted for at the same you know, effect as if it happened over a full season. Um, so that that's going to be the, the the trick, and that's going to be the subjectivity is which of these skills are we seeing, uh, you know, are, are are real? Fernando Tatis mentioned him a couple times um, is is striking out less amongst everything else, as if he needed to improve, and you know, he's even fanning fewer times. So it, it does how much does that pull? On my on my strikeout uh, contact rate calculation, do I you know do I give this year more weight so that that improved skill has more pull? Uh, that sort of thing. You know what popped into my head while we have been discussing this is the idea of a season is a fairly arbitrary dividing line between periods of activity, right? I mean, it's just the, in a, in the continuum of a player's career, it's just that we drew a line before, you know, um, April 1st, and we drew another line at September 30th. And we said, that's a relevant scoring period. And then we do that three times and we wait those three relevant scoring (laughs) periods. Why couldn't you take to allow for the for the shortened season this year, why couldn't you say I'm going to take the last three seasons, uh, which is uh, 320, uh, say 320 games over the last two years, and 60 this year, that gets you to 380, and just divide it by four, and say I'm going to break these into the those those relatively arbitrary scoring periods because I I feel more comfortable that I'm getting a a picture of it, especially since we know that a lot of the the uh, periods that we're looking at, they stabilize over different times. It's not necessary to have 160 games to get an p- actual picture of a skill set uh, on certain things, and it's longer than 160 on other things, so it's all fairly arbitrary anyway. There, I understand. Yeah, I, I haven't finalized anything yet, but the problem I, I see there, especially for this year, and this is going to, I mean, I even mentioned this yet. I w- would have mentioned it. A huge problem we're going to have, for this season, if you if you if you really think about it, is there are three different leagues going on. There's an AL. I'm sorry. There's a an East, a Central, and a West. Because you're you're facing just the teams within that particular league. So a a league average player, a 300, you know, a 270 average in one of those three geographical regions may not be the same as a 270 average in one of the other geographical regions just because of the quality of, of team and the pitchers are facing and the ballparks, et cetera. Normally in a 162 game season, doesn't matter what team you're on. 
things flesh out. The the quality competition evens out, and it's pretty close. So if a guy has a you know a, a whatever 380 OPS, or, sorry 380 WOBA in one team in a 380 WOBA, well the WOBA is not a good one because it's park that matters in the park. You know a one a 110 WRC plus on one team and a 110 WRC plus on another, they're probably similar hitters. Don't think we can say that this year just because of the, the everything is within itself, especially with park factors, which is another complete. Uh, I'm, I'm ignoring park factors this year because they're bogus. First of all, two months isn't enough to establish one. But again, um, a, a hundred park factor in a, in one of the East te- parks versus one of the central versus one of the West, the park factor would be a hundred for whatever metric you want. We'll just say runs, but the three parks could be playing differently because you're only comparing the, the, to each other. And so within, within those 10 parks, this played neutral, you know, if you take the 10 best hitters parks and play a league within those 10, one of them is going to be neutral, the one in the middle. And it's, you know, it's a better hitters park than 20 other parks. So it's just, it's, I don't use the word crapshoot because there are numbers and there's ways to distills down to skill. But man, what we're seeing this year is, is really going to affect things. And honestly, we don't even know what's next spring, what spring training is, are we going to be playing games or are we going to be having, you know, every, playing yourself? We don't even know what's going to be happening next year. So, and, and by that, not so much, we don't know what numbers over the spring, but we don't know how players will come out of the spring. Will it be ready to play? So it's just, uh, it's, it's, it's going to make it, it's going to be both frustrating and, and a hell of a lot of fun at the same time. Yeah, I was just noodling around with some numbers, and I thought, you know, you could do 95-game uh, arbitrary periods. You'd get four of them over the last three seasons, and, and 95 games seems like a not, not a bad thing. I'll try, Maybe I'll try that in the offseason. Here we are making all kinds of promises to ourselves, Todd, about the research that we're going to do in the offseason, and... Um, I have all these ideas. I don't know if you have them too, but I never write them down. And then uh, come January, I'm thinking I should write about something or I should do some research, but I can't think of anything. So I've got to get some kind of discipline about uh, keeping track of all the great ideas uh, that seem to pop up in these conversations for sure. Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball, Rotowire, and ESPN, and has a show every Saturday on Major League Baseball Network Radio. Coming up, our Market Watch reports on player news from the National League and the American League. Nick and Ray are on the way. That's next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, time in the show when I get to tell you about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Daily Call-Ups Report, Jeremy Deloney, Nick Richards, Matthew St. Germain, and Andy Smith look at the rising stars in the game who have made the jump to the show, like Texas catcher Sam Huff, Detroit outfielder Daz Cameron, Philadelphia right-hander Mauricio Yovera, and Yankees right-hander Clark Schmidt. In the Bullpen Buyer's Guide, columnist Doug Dennis looks at chasing those late-season saves, and what a year for it. And in the Speculator, columnist Ryan Bloomfield, who is now regretting his Tout Wars tactic of diabolically outbidding me for Zach Greinke, and thereby forcing me to take Lucas Giolito, <laughs> Ryan Bloomfield checks in on 2020's rookie class, looking at the hits and misses including Joe Adele, Luis Robert, Sixto Sanchez, and Casey Mize. And those are just three articles among literally dozens, a small sample of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. There's player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, roster forecasts in playing time tomorrow. There are buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers, a fantasy market analysis in the market pulse, 
and injury analysis in Matt Cedarholm's column, The Big Hurt. As well, we have groundbreaking fantasy baseball research and tools like the player projections. We update those every day. There are daily dashboards, pitcher matchup planners, and leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. The Baseball HQ Forums. Great content there from other people just like you who want to talk about fantasy baseball and really know their onions. Add it all up. Expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And it's all why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch Player News Reports. Ray Murphy is on deck with the American League, and leading off, it's our National League report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Always good to be here. And it's always good to have you. We start on the West Coast. Uh, some fairly significant news, perhaps. Uh, the Dodgers placed right-hander Walker Bueller on the 10-day injured list on Thursday. He's a blister on his finger. Boy, those blisters. Uh, Jock Thompson playing time today. What happens to the rotation in L.A., especially given that the team is assured of a playoff spot? There's no incentive for them to rush him back. There, there certainly isn't. With a retroactive uh, IL date, he's eligible to return on September the 20th. Uh, and with an off day in between, he will miss just one rotation turn as the Dodgers uh, try to clear up the blister issue before the playoffs. And uh, that that really is probably the most important thing for the Dodgers, getting him ready for the playoffs. Uh, Alex Wood could make a spot start in here. Um, could be a chance to use a deep and talented Dodger bullpen uh, to pick up some slack, but uh, maybe a bullpen day or a, an opener bulk type of start. Uh, but uh, the bottom line here is there's no real added value for anyone getting starts in his place. Uh, during this one start that he's likely to miss. Uh, so no real fantasy impact except on Bueller owners. Yeah, that's the thing on Bueller owners. And I'm wondering if if this blister thing doesn't completely clear up, whether, uh, as I implied with the question, they have no incentive to rush this guy back into the rotation. They're not competing for anything. There's no benefit to them. They could easily... You could easily see a pathway where Walker Bueller doesn't pitch again until the playoffs, although they do have an incentive to keep him sharp. So I guess there's a bit of yin and yang there. Right, absolutely. Uh, he could well, he could work as an opener, do three innings, and then, you know, just to stay sharp that way. That's another possibility. It is. Um, I'd, if you're an owner, you'd rather have him do the bulk roll, right, so that he can maybe pick up the win. <laughs> the The team also activated right-hander Joe Kelly from the 10-day injured list. He had a shoulder problem. What role does he play in this? Well, not, none for now. Uh, he immediately starts serving a five-game suspension from that uh, beanball incident a few weeks ago. So uh, no real impact uh, at the moment. Uh, just a, a roster move at this point to uh, get that five-game suspension out of the way. So he'll be ready for uh, for the playoffs and, and uh, the end of the season. Staying with the Dodgers, they also recalled uh, second baseman Gavin Lux, a big disappointment earlier in the year when he was expected to start the season at second base and ended up in the alternate training site. Speculator columnist Ryan Bloomfield covered Gavin Lux in a column called Rookie Class Check-Ins. What do we make of Gavin Lux? Well, you know, right now we haven't seen very much of Gavin Lux. He was a surprise uh, to be sent down to the alternate site before the season started. Didn't resurface until August 27th, uh, and it, it looked like he just wasn't ready to handle Major League pitching in, in July. Uh, just four hits in his first 27 at-bats, uh, a 180 uh, XBA. Looked like maybe he's still not ready for uh, uh, for Major League pitching. And then came Wednesday night, two home runs, five RBIs, an absolute explosion. And we've certainly seen that before. 
uh, with guys who, who can't uh, don't hit a thing in their first 30 at bats or their first 60 or their first 90 and then become the player that we're expect they were expected to be. On the other hand, you could argue that uh, he has two home runs and five RBIs in a game, and that might be it for the year. What I'd like to see is him sort of be consistent getting hits and, and hitting for power and being a producer in more than one sort of explosive game. Yeah, absolutely. You'd like to see him have some, uh, have some long-term uh, success in that role. And so really it's been a lost season for him at this point, and that's never a good thing. Uh, the fact that he couldn't make the team out of the summer camp is a bigger deal probably than his 27 at bat struggle over the last couple of weeks. So uh, very talented, uh, very young, uh, but certainly his stock has taken something of a hit over the last uh, couple of days. And then also we had uh, last night had Mookie Betts on Thursday night. Mookie Betts played second base. I saw that, and uh, what a surprise that is. Uh, Mookie Betts, of course, a very, a very skilled athlete. Uh, and uh, why would they put him in at second base, Nick? I think Mookie has simply been pushing to do that. He did that, uh, did that uh, some years ago, and uh, you know, you never know if if Mookie plays can play second base on a regular basis, that would give the Dodgers some incredible flexibility. And his fantasy owners would get some too. Uh, uh, this raises a question for me, Nick. Before we move on, how is your league handling position eligibility for 2021 based on what happened in 2020? It's usually 15 or 20 games from the previous season. Uh, is your are your leagues prorating it to whatever the be about six, seven, or eight games, I guess, for eligibility? Or how how are your leagues handling uh, position eligibility? No one at that point has mentioned that at this point, and that may come up in the off season. I guess no one's really thought about it. But our requirement is 12 games at a position to be eligible. Uh, so I guess we'll have to see on the offseason when those discussions may take place. Yeah, it's going to be something interesting. And I don't think a lot of people are thinking about it at this point either. So that makes for an interesting argument because invariably you get uh, you get owners who, who weigh in because it's going to help them if the position eligibility requirement is lowered, especially in keeper leagues where they have guys who all of a sudden add value by being eligible, having played only couple of games in 2020 at a position like Mookie Betts or even one or two just one game you know uh, uh, Mookie Betts is valuable enough as it is but boy if you give him infield and uh, infield and outfield status going into 2021 I mean his value definitely takes a bump oh very definitely yeah if, if you could move him around play him at second or in the outfield what, what a what a boon that would be for a fantasy lineup Speaking of second baseman, uh, Nick, Atlanta finally activated Ozzie Albies from the IL. And uh, like Gavin Lux, he came back with a bang. Yeah, he's been out since early August. Uh, been off to a very slow start with a 7 for 44 with a single homer. And it's, it's possible that the wrist injury was the main culprit in the slow start. Uh, in both 2018-2019, he was one of the best fantasy second basemen around. 24 homers in each season, uh, three-figure PX and speed scores. And assuming he's healthy, has the potential to be a real difference maker down the stretch, uh, meaning you'll want him in, in the lineup uh, as soon as is practical. But he, he did indeed come back with a bang, uh, exploded uh, in his first game back for, uh, uh, went three for six. Uh, I believe it was two home runs and a couple of RBIs. And uh, so an absolute, no, actually just one home run, uh, a couple of RBIs, but a three for six night. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I think he's ready to play again. 
it sounds like he is. He's a terrific player. And, uh, of course, a lot of people were wondering what was going on with Ozzy Albies this year. And it, it could indeed have been that he was trying to trying to play through the injury instead of just letting it heal, which is uh, sometimes it works. More often it, it doesn't. And uh, maybe a lesson there for owners to reserve guys when they seem to be struggling in that way to find out. Uh, but, of course, if you reserve Ozzy Albies, then you have to replace him with somebody who's not nearly as good, and that's a tough sell for anybody. Uh, staying in Atlanta, they uh, put Max Fried, the uh, starting pitcher, to the IL as well. What goes on with the uh, rotation now that Max Fried is uh, out of action? Uh, a left uh, muscle, uh, left side muscle spasm uh, in his lumbar spine. Uh, uh, that doesn't sound good to me. I, I wouldn't want one of those. So, you know, it's unclear how much time he may miss. Uh, but you can bet, again, the Braves will be very cautious. Uh, even if he comes back as soon as he's eligible, just like with Bueller, there's be very little time left in the season. So we've cut his projected innings in half at this point, uh, and that may be overly optimistic. Um, Jacob Webb, I think, was called up. Jacob Webb has yet to make an appearance in 2020 uh, through 32 innings in 2019 with at least surface success, uh, 1.39 ERA. Uh, XERA was 4.91. Uh, not likely to be much fantasy help uh, as we head into the stretch. So uh, probably not a great a great impact on other players. Uh, but at this point, uh, if, you're, if you've got Max Freed, you need to replace him in your lineup. Also, you'll have to replace Charlie Culberson as part of the uh, Atlanta mixing and matching their roster. Charlie Culberson was the victim. He was designated for assignment, so he's going to go to the alternate training site and will not be available for fantasy owners. Not that he was a huge help, but in only leagues, I imagine he was probably on some rosters. So you've got to make a move on uh, Charlie Culberson as well. Moving over to the Mets, uh, they had a bit of a catching issue going on, and now they've added a guy. I've got to admit, Nick, I've never heard of Thomas Nido. Uh, Alan DeLeonardis covers the Mets for playing time tomorrow, the National League East. What's the story with this guy, Thomas Nido? Yeah, this is a guy you need to need to really keep track of. He nears a return after being sidelined since August 25th, and the Mets really have some decisions to make about their catching, uh, and, and the results could really up in the status quo. Uh, Wilson Ramos began the season as the clear number one catcher on the strength of his 2019 performance uh, and, and really career offensive numbers, and uh, he's appeared in 33 games this year, uh, by far more than any other Mets catcher, and his performance has been very disappointing. A 226 batting average, uh, uh, so just seven seven runs scored, three homers, nine RBIs, and 106 at bats. And despite some some uh, improvements on defense, uh, still a below average uh, re- a receiver and pitch framer. So uh, he hasn't given the Mets much this year. Uh, Robin Cicerinos was acquired at the deadline from Texas. Uh, he hasn't exactly set the world on fire uh, so far this season, either at 135 batting average, uh, three runs, no homers, three RBIs, and 52 at-bats. A little better over the past three seasons, but uh, again, not a guy with great offensive uh, offensive profile. So uh, here we've got this guy, this Thomas Nido, and we'll, we'll forgive you if you haven't been following the Mets catching situ- situation all season. Uh, he may not be the third wheel in the crowd that you would think. So far this season, he slashed 292, 346, 583, four runs, two homers, six RBIs, and 24 at bats. A very small sample. It doesn't have an offensive track record to back up uh, to, to match, certainly, the other two players. But uh, his, his minor league uh, slash line, 263, 303, 378, uh, actually quite decent for a catcher. In his most recent minor league season, though, 
uh, a, a, a 100, 100 WRC plus and a 15% uh, 0.8 case strikeout rate stand out. Uh, going back a little further, he was had a couple of impressive years. And here's the thing to think about. This guy is a defensive whiz compared to both Ramos and, and Chirinos, especially good at pitch framing. Uh, and so given all of that, uh, and with their attempts to tighten up team defense uh, down the stretch, don't be surprised if Thomas Nido becomes the number one catcher once he rejoins the team sometime this week. Well, it makes a, it makes a good case. I know that uh, Ramos has especially been really disappointing, so maybe this is a chance to grab up uh, a guy. The one worry here, of course, is, as Alain de Leonardis mentions, is the offensive surge that Thomas Nido has shown of late is based on some really small sample sizes, and we've got to be careful about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, those small sample sizes can trip you up very easily, and certainly that's uh, that's one of the things to be careful about with Thomas Nido at this point. But on the other hand, if the guy uh, hits a hot streak, uh, he may be better than your second catcher or even your first catcher, depending upon who you've got on your roster at this point. Moving along, uh, St. Louis made some moves this week, uh, perhaps the biggest one being uh, they demoted Dylan Carlson, sent him to the alternate training site, and this came as something of a surprise, well, not given his performance, but boy, there was a there was a hullabaloo when Dylan Carlson got called up, I can tell you, and there was some pretty aggressive fab bidding on Dylan Carlson, uh, but it hasn't worked out that well for him. No, it hasn't so far. I mean, at this point, uh, one, 162, 215, 243 slash, uh, the home run percent gods have not been nice to Dylan Carlson. Uh, underlying 215 uh, XBA reflects a lot of strikeouts and not too much power. So, you know, Carlson was thrown into a tough spot. He debuted on August 15th and played eight games the next five games, days as St. Louis tried to catch up from their COVID outbreak. But, uh, uh, you know, I, I think it's probably best to give COVID Dylan Carlson a pass on this season. It's been a strange season. Uh, and if the if the if the uh, debut dud creates a buying opportunity, especially in a keeper league, wouldn't be a bad time to jump in because uh, I think this guy's going to be better than he showed this season. St. Louis also activated Carlos Martinez, and this is a, a piece of interesting news as well. Uh, it is indeed. Carlos Martinez is one of those situations that uh, uh, they weren't sure if he was going to start. They weren't sure if he was going to wind up in the bullpen as the closer. Um, He's only made one start, an outing in which he yielded six earned runs in 3.2 innings. Uh, pitched well last season, uh, but that was as the Cards closer. So, uh, healthy, a solid starter. So, where does that leave him for the rest of this year? Uh, no game action to go on, it's hard to predict. Uh, even if he's pitching well, it's difficult to expect him to go very deep into games at this point. Uh, so, uh, I'm not sure that that, uh, that Carlos Martinez would be a fantasy, have much fantasy impact. Uh, in the next couple of weeks. In San Diego, Nick, uh, first baseman Eric Hosmer broke his left index finger. He's on the IL. What's the ramifications in San Diego? Yeah, you know, and how did he break that left index finger? On a, injured on a bunt attempt. So, uh, you know, you and I have talked about this before, but sometimes these major leaguers need to practice bunting. <laughs> but uh, now at this point, he's on the IL um, and uh, will miss everything ex at best except the final few games of the season. Uh, it's being reported that he'll take longer for him to throw than hit. Uh, so that could get him some end of season at bats of the DH to prep for the postseason. Uh, so certainly the guy that gets the most playing time uh, bump is Mitch Moreland. Uh, suddenly he vacates most of the DH at bats and moves to first base. And DH is likely to be rotated around the other Padres who are not playing a full-time position. Austin Nola will see some time there. 
as the Padres try to keep his bat in the lineup. Uh, so uh, those are going to be the primary, I think, playing time gainers at this point would be Nola and, uh, and Mitch Moreland. Uh, maybe Jason Castro with Nola moving to the DH would get some more at-bats as, as the catcher. Uh, but uh, the, the biggest impact, of course, is uh, the loss of Eric Cosmer for his owners. And uh, they also have Abraham Almonte, who looks to get uh, some playing time increase in the outfield as they kind of shift and move and try to restructure what's going on in San Diego. So it's, it's a blow for San Diego and, of course, a really big blow for Eric Hosmer owners. Uh, let's move over to Arizona, Nick. A second baseman, Kettle Marte, has been sent to the uh, IL. He has wrist inflammation. Well, what do we know about the Kettle Marte situation and who benefits there? We don't know a whole lot at this point. Uh, it's, we're not, it's not clear whether Marte is going to be out for a long term or whether this is a short term kind of thing. Uh, but certainly that, again, is a kind of blow for fantasy owners as Kendall Marte certainly is a, a staple in, in your fantasy lineup at this point. Uh, so this is a situation just to monitor until we get more information out of Arizona about exactly what's going on uh, and, and how long Marte may actually be out. And we've uh, spoken before about teams not having much incentive to activate certain players in certain situations. And certainly that would be the case here because Arizona is not going to gamble on one of their better players having any kind of issues because they're going nowhere fast. Right, absolutely. It's not something that they're, they're not going to be uh, in a hurry to, get, to bring him uh, back to the lineup if there's any kind of uh, possible lingering problem here. And not for nothing, but uh, Josh Van Meter, recently acquired from Cincinnati, is on the depth chart as the sort of uh, substitute second baseman, so maybe he picks up some playing time. I guess, as you said, we'll have to wait and see. And finally, Nick, the Cubs made a bit of a splash at the trade deadline, acquiring uh, infielder, outfielder, mostly DH, uh, Jose Martinez from Tampa to take over in uh, Chicago as the primary DH. It didn't work out at all. They've actually sent him down to the alternate training site and activated outfielder Billy Hamilton. Yeah, actually, that, that's what happened. And actually, the, the, the trade for Martinez uh, did not work out very well. A limited number of bats, primarily the DH against left-handed pitchers. Uh, and they'll likely turn to rotating catchers Wilson Contreras and Victor Caratini as DH against left-handers. Uh, uh, Jason Kittness may get some uh, increased DH time versus right-handers. Uh, but uh, this is really a, a, one of those moves. Uh, Jose Martinez has certainly had, I think, a very disappointing season. Uh, and the trade of the Cubs didn't didn't help very much. No, it didn't help at all, actually. Uh, I was just looking at his game log. I don't think he had a hit when he was with Chicago. Maybe, uh, no, I don't think he had a hit. He didn't have an RBI. He just didn't do anything really uh, much at all. And he's slowly but surely playing his way out of any kind of relevance to fantasy baseball at all, unless he turns things around in some new, yet another new setting. Right, very definitely. I mean, uh, you know, used to, a couple of years ago, a kind of guy you would look at as a as a nice addition to the to the team, kind of at the bottom of your of your draft, and certainly uh, no longer at this point. All right, Nick. A lot of news in the National League this week. Uh, we'll have you back in a week's time. Uh, maybe things will slow down a bit. Maybe they'll pick up. We never know. <laughs> you never know. It's it's been a wild and crazy season, but it looks like we might make it through it. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst with BaseballHQ.com and our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn to the American League and Baseball HQ columnist and co-general manager Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back to the show. 
Hello, Patrick. Much to talk about here. Is there ever? Yes, it was quite a week. Uh, it has been quite a week so far, and I imagine there's more to come. But let's start with the Yankees. Infielder Glaber Torres had been on the IL with a hamstring problem. They activated him on Saturday and optioned Albert Abreu. He's a pitcher to the alternate training site. Chris Olson covers the Yankees for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. Uh, of course, Torres steps right into the lineup. What else is going on in New York? Yeah, it's really a case of as the Yankees infield turns. It's, uh, you know, Torres is back, but uh, Giovanni Urshela disappeared for a brief DL stint, which meant that uh, Torres plugs the shortstop hole, but third base becomes a hole. So the Yankees kind of spun things around and moved uh, DJ Mayhew from second base to third base. And then the uh, same cast of guys you and I have talked about two or three times now, your Tyler Waves and Thyro Estradas are covering second base now, at least until uh, Ursula gets back and LeMahieu can go back there. So I think our guidance remains the same. We're not too fired up about Wade or Estrada. Uh, the opening at third base, I sort of thought, might be a temptation for the Yankees to go back to Miguel Andujar third for a little while and suffer with his glove. But the problem with suffering with Andujar's glove is he's not hitting either. So suffering with both his glove and his bat is a little too much to ask for anybody. They do expect Ursula back. Uh, do you have a kind of a, a ETA on him? Yeah, they they were saying that's gonna should be a min DL stint, which would put him back uh, early early middle next week. So this might be a uh, you know, the, the uh, patchwork second base situation might be a very short term thing, and they'll get back to their standard infield of void at first, Lemayhew at second, Torres at short, and Ursula at third by uh, by March by uh, September fifteenth or so. Which would give about two weeks of that lineup to for fantasy owners' purposes to get all those guys active if they weren't already active, and you get a couple of weeks. I suppose it's not a lot, but it's better than nothing. Yeah, and you know, the other thing about it that's probably good from a fantasy perspective is we've talked so many times about these good teams, the Yankees certainly among them, just playing to get ready for October. But the Yankees have drifted down to I think the number eight seed in the AL playoff race, and you know, they're not in imminent danger of falling out of the uh, playoff seedings, but they have to play to win enough to get in. They're not like the Dodgers where they're locked into their seed. They're going to they're gonna need to be tuning up for October, but they also need to worry about winning some games here. So it will probably not be, uh, you know, so, summer camp extended in these last two weeks for the Yankees. They should be playing to win. Yeah, I was uh, listening to a Jays game the other night, and of course Toronto has pulled ahead of New York in that American League race, uh, in the American League East, and in the overall race in the American League. And all of a sudden, uh, Detroit's looking a little frisky, maybe two or three games behind New York, and of course they got really hammered the other night <laughs> in a kind of a legendary hammering, which wasn't even the worst hammering of the night. I think they gave up 20 runs or 20-plus runs, and somebody gave up near 30, I think, when I finally fell asleep. Uh, Atlanta was on the verge of hanging 30 on somebody. <laughs> Uh, so the offenses are back, but uh, yeah, you're right. I don't think the Yankees can rest on their laurels here. There's uh, there's going to be a little bit of pressure from behind. Baltimore is even closer than Detroit. Yeah, it's funny. Baltimore, Detroit, even a little bit of Seattle are all within 
you know, a five game winning streak of making the Yankees very uncomfortable. So, uh, you know, the Yankees will have to play it straight. And I, I, we're now 36 hours later or something, Patrick, but I think the Braves just scored again in that Wednesday night game. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, in the American League East staying there, talking about Toronto, their uh, pennant hopes, their playoff hopes really took a blow this week when outfielder Teoscar Hernandez was placed on the 10-day IL. He's got an oblique strain, uh, which he suffered apparently while swinging wildly at a pitch out of the strike zone which he hasn't been doing as much this year, uh, which we can talk about. But uh, the team recalled an outfielder, Jonathan Davis, from the alternate training site. This is a blow to Toronto, and what happens with Teoscar's playing time? Yeah, this is a blow to Toronto for sure. It's a blow to his fantasy owners. Let's uh, let's pour out a cold one for this fantastic season that Teoscar put up if, uh, if he is, in fact, out for the remainder. Uh, 308, 14 home runs, five stolen bases, and just 146 at-bats. That's a... Yeah, you know, this was a thirty-five dollars season in this, uh, you know, bent alternate reality we live in. But uh, I know both you and I were enjoying him on some of our teams, and losing him stinks. But I, I have to, uh, I would be remiss if I did not tip the cap to him first. Indeed, uh, he was having a tremendous year, and as you said, uh, probably top five, definitely first round value. I don't know that any, I don't know that he's going to be a first round ADP next season when this all starts over again. But I bet he moves up from whatever he was this year, ninth round, eighth round, something like that, maybe even later, into a much higher position because of the five category possibilities. Yeah, I mean, how do we how do we interpret these sixty game samples, or in Tiasco's case, a forty game sample is uh, something we could spend all offseason talking about. That's going to be interesting. Uh, but meanwhile, back at Toronto, the you know they also lost Rowdy Tellez in addition to Tiasco, so there are some dominoes to move here. Uh, Derek Fisher, you know, as you said, Jonathan Davis got called up, but so far it's been Derek Fisher filling in in the outfield. Um, and you know, but the big question with the Jays is is Bo Bichette going to be ready soon? Because now Bichette's got a couple of different paths. He could potentially come back and DH a little bit, push Vlad over to first base to fill in for Telez, or if he can go all the way back to the infield fairly soon, then you know we. I think you and I talked when they acquired Jonathan VR in Toronto that he could be an option in the outfield too. And now there's even even more pressing need for him out there. So all northern eyes are on Bo Bichette, I guess. Yeah, they are. Let's move back for a second to Derek Fisher. Let's assume that he gets some playing time. Is he of any worth in a um, mixed format? Is he of any worth in an AL-only format? Or is he just one of those guys that maybe as your very last resort could be worth adding? Yeah, there's not a heck of a lot to tease out there. Smattering of power, smattering of speed, uh, but only 400 career major league at bats and a contact rate that's under 60%. So even though he can, he can, uh, fill the box score a little bit from the power and speed perspective, uh, you know, in, in normal circumstances, we'd say there's a batting average penalty to come with that. Uh, but honestly, you know, in two plus weeks, if he plays that much, you know, there's no guarantee that, that he's not going to go on a little tear. So the batting average could stand up and, you know, I, as we, I think as we've seen, Anybody who's starting in a game in Buffalo is probably worth consideration. So if you can spot him for a uh, for a Jays homestand, you might bleed some value out of him. 
Seven homers and five bags last year. Uh, this year in much shorter playing time, he only had the one home run and no steals. Uh, I think the problem with Derek Fisher is in the short run, he could also kill you with the batting average. He could easily hang a you know a one for 35 on you, uh, assuming that the Jays let him play that long. So there's a, a bit of a mixed bag there as far as how willing you are to speculate. What about the guy they called up, Jonathan Davis, hit a home run in his first game back? Yeah, so this is going to be a meritocracy, like you said. I don't think the uh, I don't think the Jays are going to let Fisher Fisher or anybody go one for thirty five uh, for exactly that reason. So uh, anybody who hits gets a shot, and Fisher's in that mix. Uh, Billy McKinney's going to be in that mix, and yeah, Davis, uh, you know, homer. I don't know if that was in his first or second game, but that's uh, you know that's interesting. He he came in from from our scouting staff as a 7D prospect, which is a, you know, low percentage chance of being an average regular, but, um, you know, there's a little power there, but, you know, the more, maybe the more interesting thing there, if you're really desperate in the last week is that he's more of a burner. So, you know, if you get to, to a spot where somebody who might get an occasional start and pinch run or be that 10th inning runner, uh, is something that where you could bleed a little bit of value out at the very end of your season in the in the end game. Uh, that's probably somebody to squint at for value there. And getting back to Rowdy Tellez, uh, of course, he's done for the year. The Jays have not quite announced, but the uh, broadcast team on the game the other night said that they, they, that's what they had been told. So let's assume that Rowdy Tellez doesn't play again this year. That leaves a bit of an opening at first base. Uh, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. probably steps in. Does this affect Travis Shaw's playing time at all? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I was thinking when this happened that, uh, you know, it was a week or 10 days ago that uh, Daniel Vogelback passed through Toronto for about five minutes. And, you know, he's gone again now, but he would he would have fit nicely into this playing time picture. Um, I, I think this is going to be pretty fractured at the first base DH situation. If it's not, if it doesn't have to be Bichette, uh, you, you know, there's, uh, you know, Vlad could go to first base if they want to. Kevin Biggio has been sort of a, a, a jack of all trades. Uh, you know, VR has been can push Shaw off of third, so he fits into that. They they have a little bit of a you know what we used to call with the Joe Madden Cubs a little bit of team pretzel going on here. They can uh, they can duct tape things a lot of ways on a day to day basis, and I I, I think they're gonna uh, splice this until they uh, until Bichette comes back. I think that's a good analysis. I think the the uh thing about the Rays, uh, the, the Jays, similar to the Rays, is that uh, they have constructed a roster where they do have that that fungibility, which is something that we often recommend to fantasy owners, is get guys who are eligible in multiple positions, because then you're not forced to dig into the bottom of the barrel if somebody gets hurt. There are more ways to slide the pieces around, like one of those games you had when you were a kid where you're sliding the tiles around the little tray trying to make a, a picture of something. Uh, and one interesting thing about Rowdy Tellers, and I'm thinking more ahead to next year, it is a short run this year we understand that and and he was having a pretty good season but the question is always do the skills support it and uh, I haven't seen a facts and flukes on Rowdy Tellez of late but I did notice one thing they were talking on the broadcast about Tellez and how how the influence of Dante Bichette who's not the hitting coach he's kind of a consultant in there but he's in the dugout every day and apparently Tellez has said that what Bichette is telling the team is when you get two strikes on, you stop trying to hit home runs. Don't swing for the fences with two strikes. Put the ball in play, cut back on your swing. 
which sounds like something that, uh, you know, Branch Rickey probably told his teams back in the day, and everybody seems to have forgotten it. But uh, with uh, Tele's strikeout rate, 28%, 28% in 2018-19, down to 16% this year. So he's cut his strikeout rate in half. And we know that if you put just put the ball in play, good things can happen. You can you can make an out but drive in a run. You can put the ball in play and maybe get an error and come around and score. There's lots of things that can happen when you don't strike out. Yeah, 100%. And it's interesting, you know, framing it in that context with Bichette, I think is exactly the color that helps you interpret his skill set here. If you look at how it changed, sure, 113 at-bats, small sample caveats apply, but the contact rate in particular stabilizes in that time frame. So we can take the contact rate uh, you know, cutting their strikeouts in half as as real, but and some of the other trends aren't great. I mean, sure, when contact rate goes up, is expecting bat average batting average went up. So you know, two eighty three batting average for the season, supported by a two ninety xba, is great. The power metrics fell a little bit. His expected power is now a little bit below average. His ground ball line drive fly ball spread, which was tilted pretty heavily toward liners and fly balls before is now sprinkled with a lot more ground balls, which ordinarily would be a bad sign for power output. But because the number of balls in play is so much bigger because he's striking out less, that doesn't matter as much. And even if it is that he's shortening his swing a little bit and you know X percentage of the time that results in a ground ball, but but sometimes those ground balls get through, and that's how the batting average you know can, can stabilize. So even if his approach is basically what you said, and he's trying to hit for power early in the count and then – just trying to get on base later. I mean, there's a reason. There's a reason that advice has been around for 70 or 80 years, right? It kind of works. Exactly right. Yeah, 113 at bats this year before going down. Uh, he had 370 at bats last year, so we're looking at, you know, a, a 3.1 ratio kind of. And he had uh, uh, 49 runs scored last year, but he was already at 20 this year. So he, on a on the same at bat per at bat basis, he probably would have been 10 to 12 runs ahead of the game. Even more RBIs. He had 54 last year in 370, and this year was at 23 for 113. This is if you just triple everything. He's a much better run producer as well as everything else. And of course, his batting average is, you know, uh, 50, 60 points higher. His XBA is 40, 50 points higher. I think. If Rowdy Tellez can make this particular coaching moment stick, he just has a chance to be a way better player. Yeah, 100%. I mean, the counting stats feed off of those additional times on base. It's not just a batting average. It's a, you know, it's a 50-point game gain in on base percentage. It's a 100-point gain in slugging. It's, you know, this is a different player. And sure, the, you know, we have to see him do it for more than 100 at-bats, but when the contact rate is, we can determine to be legitimate, and it's not you know, we, we, we know that there's a change in approach, a change in philosophy behind it. It gets easier to endorse. And now you've got me curious. I want to go back and look at what some of the other Jays are doing and see if uh, see if Pichette's getting to, getting through to some of the rest of them, too. I thought a lot of this was just Buffalo, but there's apparently more to it than that. Yeah, because his uh, home run per fly ball rate is pretty much the same, but he's hitting fewer fly balls, as you mentioned, uh, down from 38%, I think, last year to 34 this year. So it's not like he's become, you know, a Billy Hamilton out there, right? he's trying to bat the ball into play and use his uh, uh, enormous foot speed to his advantage. But <laughs> <laughs> that's, not a, that's not a workable 
plan for Rowdy. No, to say the least. Yeah, and I think the other thing is, if you're in an on-base league, he's also drawing more walks. So if you happen to have had him in an on-base league this year, his on-base percentage is up around 350. Now that's not Mike Trout country, which is 400, but it's also not typical Rowdy Telez country, which is under 300. He's made enormous strides in on-base percentage and batting average at the same time. So in those ratio categories, if he can maintain it again, the big question. But if the skills support those things as we believe they do, then I think Rowdy Tellez, if people don't buy it and don't look into it deeply enough, next year is going to be a very interesting guy to watch in uh, ADPs and auctions. 100%. Yeah, if he's going you know, anywhere beyond, I'll just spitball it at you know, round 15 now in a, in a mixed league, I'm going to be you know, all over him in the back half of my draft. Yes, absolutely. Of course, there's going to be a playing time question as far as defense goes. The Jays have got to find some place for uh, Guerrero to play. I don't think he wants to DH a lot. I don't think he he uh, is very capable at first base just yet. Uh, Tellez also, you know, not going to make anybody forget uh, Keith Hernandez with the mitt either. But uh, maybe there's a mix and match there where they kind of take turns. So I guess we'll have to see. Moving on to uh, Kansas City, the outfielder Jorge Soler, big story last year. Not so much this year. He placed uh, on the 10-day IL. He's got an oblique strain as well. The move was retroactive to earlier uh, this week. What happens uh, with the playing time for Jorge Soler? Jock Thompson on the story. Yeah, so this seems to be a case where this is going to date back to the trading deadline where you'll remember that they sent uh, Trevor Rosenthal to San Diego for Edward Alvarez. And Alvarez, uh, who got a brief, very brief look in the uh, San Diego out, outfield coming out of um, coming out of training camp back in the start of the season, now seems to be the beneficiary of the playing time from Soler here, and he's gotten off to an interesting little start. He's picked up a couple of a uh, couple of multi-hit games in the last week. He's actually uh, got multi-hit games in four four of the six games he started in September already. So he's you know taking this job and running with it, and he's. Not an uninteresting prospect. He was number 11 on the San Diego organization report this year. And remember, San Diego is one of the deepest systems in the game. So that's not a, uh, that, that's certainly nothing to sneeze at. He's sported, uh, you know, some power and a lot of speed in double A last year, 18 homers, 35 stolen bases, which is, which are some big numbers. Uh, you know, we rated him an 8C prospect, which is, uh, you know, a guy who's got some upside. Uh, you know, chance chance to be better than just an average starter, and the power and speed plays in fantasy in in the fantasy formats in particular. So this is you know this is just a big week right now. But if you but there's real you know I think it's somebody who you really want to chase for the next few weeks if you're playing for right now. And if the big week turns into a big month, you know, he's going to be somebody who could be another guy who could be flying up the ADPs next spring if uh, if he hangs up a couple more weeks like the last one. And of course, we know stolen bases in particular are really team dependent. Uh, if you have a, a runner on the Mariners, you're like likelier to get stolen bases than you are if you have them on the Tigers or the White Sox, for instance. And the Royals are kind of well into the upper one third of the of Major League Baseball as far as willingness to to try a stolen base. So that actually augurs pretty well for Edward Olivares' value as well. 
Yeah, I'm still trying to get it through my head that Mike Matheny is now some enlightened sabermetric genius, but here we are. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the sabermetrics but, all say you should never steal a base, right? It's just stand right, right. around and wait for a home run. Right, but there's a, you know there there is a serious point there, which is you know all the uh, sample caveats apply, but uh, Alvarez is over over two stealing this year. Uh, in the majors, got caught once in San Diego and did get caught once this week with the Royals. So if Matheny is enlightened, but enlightened enough to take away the green light, if he gets caught a few more times, then that's a potential concern. Uh, sometimes it takes these guys a little bit longer to uh, you know, get their timing of uh, big league pitchers. And you know, I don't want to say they're so excited to get to first base that they forget what to do, but there's probably some of that going on when they, these guys are just establishing themselves. So, you know, this, this, the stolen bases may take a little while to develop here, but keep in mind that there, are, you know, there is a minor league track record of stolen base success in this guy's background. And I think uh, that's one of the things in a minor leaguer's background that actually transfers very well to the major leagues, unlike some of the other things that go on. A, a guy with like minor league power, Crash Davis, uh, gets up to the big leagues or be, and just can't. But if you can run, you can run. That's right. The bases are still 90 feet apart in the majors. And the, the skill of it or the, or the, the trade of it uh, is easier to develop, I think, in the minor leagues, and uh, that the confidence that you can do it probably transfers better to the majors as well. Uh, moving on to Houston, uh, mixed bag on the injury front for the Astros. Third baseman Alex Bregman had been out on the IL with a hamstring problem. He was activated on Tuesday of this week, I believe, and unfortunately for them, at the same time, Jose Altuve's hurt. So is it just a swap out here? Yeah, kind of similar to the Yankee situation, although the good news is that they uh, they have been running out Abraham Toro and Miles Straw, guys we had talked about before who really were not hitting at all. Uh, but they also did, in addition to getting Bregman back, the uh, probably the more significant news in terms of potential acquisitions in your fantasy league down the stretch is they also got Olympics Diaz back. Um, and Diaz is, you know, their traditional utility guy and a cut above the uh, the straw and Toro types, uh, he's not hitting yet. He's hitting 194 in, you know, about a week's worth of playing time here, uh, with two home runs, but Diaz is going to continue to play. I would imagine it's second for as long as Altuve is out. So that's another pocket of playing time with a track record of some reasonable skill behind it. That might, you might be worth chasing over the last two weeks of the season here. Altuve hadn't been really doing a lot for the Astros or for his fantasy owners. Uh, is, is there a possibility here that uh, we're, we're seeing the beginning of the end for Jose Altuve as a as a fantasy linchpin? Yeah, I, I think we have to be a little bit concerned about that. I think, you know, to give him the benefit of the doubt, um, I'm not sure what we've seen a how much we've seen of a healthy Jose Altuve lately. Uh, you know, I don't know how long he's been dragging around the knee this year. And I remember back in... Uh, you know, 2018, which is when his, some of his uh, you know value fell off late in the season and the power dropped off. That uh, it turned out that he had been battling knee problems and some other things all year. Um, you know, it's going to be hard to when we get to the off season. It's going to be very easy to give just about anybody with a track record a mulligan on everything about the screwy 2020 season. So that's probably my default analysis for Altuve now. But, you know, he's also age 30 this year, which means he's 31 in 2021. And, you know, we've certainly seen a multi-year decline in his speed and speed is a skill of the young. So that's probably the first thing that goes away for him. But that doesn't necessarily mean his days as an elite fantasy asset are over. 
Staying in Houston, Lance McCullers Jr., he's out again. Uh, who figures to get his innings this time? Whoever's healthy, <laughs> which is pretty much the story, the story there. There, you know, There's a lot going on in Houston. Uh, they just got Jose Urquidy back, who's somebody who we liked a lot way back five years ago in February and March. Um, but he uh, he was on the COVID list for the bulk of the summer, just finally got back to uh, – full strength and made a first start in a doubleheader and got, uh, you know, only made it through 63 pitches and three and a third innings, but they'll probably stretch him out a little bit more and let's see where he is in another start or two. There's Brandon Belak as well, who could fill in here. Uh, he's less, um, he's not as new in that he's been pitching for out of the bullpen for the season. We've got him rated as a seven B prospect, uh, which is, you know, sort of a back half of the staff filler sort, somebody who could have a little bit of value in a middle relief or setup role. But I mean, in 27 innings this year, he's got 15 walks and 22 strikeouts, an ERA of six, a whip of 1.6. That's not that's not about to turn on a dime. I'm not that interested in that. Uh, but and you also got to remember that we may, in some capacity, see Justin Verlander down the stretch too. So, uh, you know, certainly I think he's going to be on you know, basically a big league rehab stint if we see him at all, probably for short innings and being handled very carefully. But uh, those, those are a few guys who might pick up McCullers innings here. Of the whole bunch, I think I would lean towards Urquidy, who has at least shown some decent skills at the major league level in 2019. He uh, only struck out about nine per nine, which is, you know, in this day and age is okay, but not great. But he was, wasn't walking anybody, a 1.5 per nine walk rate, which is really good, and a 5.7 strikeouts to walk command ratio, which is also really good. Uh, this year, it was a, a complete catastrophe, but I think that was injury related. Yeah, that's right. And I think... This is something I'm, I may poke at in the offseason from a research perspective, but I've sort of seen a trend not unlike what we've seen with Urquidy here where he got roughed up a little bit in his first start where it's taken these guys a start or two to find their command in particular. And I'm wondering if that just has to do with uh, you know the caliber of reps they can get in at the alternate sites. And you know these guys all would have gone on two or three or four start rehab rehab assignments in the minor leagues before they came back to the majors in normal circumstances. They're not doing that now. And I think you almost have to give them a pass on the first start or two and see if the command in particular staff back in, because like you say, urquidy has got a track record historically of command. It wasn't there in his first start, but I would not be at all surprised to see it snap back into place in the next week or two here. And in the meantime, his poor record this year might dissuade a lot of people from taking a chance on him, thinking that whatever he was doing in 2019 has just vanished in 2020. But skills don't vanish in that same way, as you suggest. Uh, staying in the Lone Star State, a lot of moves for the Rangers in Arlington, starting with the pending activation of outfielder Willie Calhoun from the IL. He had a hamstring problem. He got hit in the face with a pitch, I think, or bounced a foul ball off his own face or something earlier in the year. Bad year for Willie Calhoun, but he's supposed to be coming back during the team's upcoming homestand. Rod Truesdell covered this, and the Willie Calhoun thing's just the start of the moves they were making down in Texas. Yeah, it really is just the start, and I think this might be the third week in a row you and I have talked about some machination of the same names in Texas here. Chew is out. No, Chew's back in. No, Odor's off the DL. No, Odor's on the DL. This is, uh, you know, this, this week's scorecard really, though, is less about the injuries and more about the Rangers turning the page to 2021. And they're committing to 
Nick Solak, and of course Calhoun's part of the mix, but Shinsu Chu is not, and Chu's on the DL again anyway. Kiner Philippe is part of the mix. And they're going to take a look at guys like Eli White and Anderson Tejada at the expense of Rupert Odor and, and even Elvis Andrews. So this is, uh, you know, nobody's going to the ballpark, but, you know, they're, the Rangers are doing their version of bringing your kids to see our kids. And Leody Tavares, whom we talked about a week or two ago as well, is part of the mix, according to Rod Truesdell. And uh, really, I think we have to downplay any chance of Andrews, Odor, and Chu, as you mentioned. Uh, Danny Santana's out for the year as well, uh, injury issue there. So uh, the Texas lineup, when you look at it on your TV screen, is going to look a lot different, I think, for these last two weeks. And we should really be paying attention because there's some decent young talent here. Yeah, there's some talent. We've talked about Solak before. He's very interesting. Uh, Tejada is somebody who I think we've only skimmed, but there's but, but there's some talent there too. This is a uh, this is another one of those has some power, has some speed, has some contact issues, but he's only 22. And Andrews has shown for several years now that he can't stay healthy. So he, you know, Tejada may very well be the shortstop of the future here, and they're going to take at least a a couple of week look at him. Uh, you know, it, in fact, over just 20 plus at bats so far this year, he's already displaying exactly the kind of profile we're talking about. Uh, two home runs and two stolen bases already, but only making contact 58% of the time and hitting 208. Uh, so that might, you know, th- th- that might be his near term reality. It's a sort of an instant snapshot. And Solak in 150 at bats has been a you know near twenty dollar value mostly because he has four stolen bases. But if you prorate that out to you know 600 at bats, all of a sudden you're looking at a mid 20s stolen base guy, and he's not going to kill you in the other categories. He's got a couple of homers and you know sort of he's up around 20 runs and RBIs this year, and uh, he's batting 280 and he's full value for it. He's got an 83 percent contact rate, so he's not swinging and missing. Back to the Rowdy Tellez conversation, I think Nick Solak could be one of those guys that I'm going to be very very interested in when I start thinking about 2021. I think that's right. And I think, uh, you know, it's awfully early to project this too, but as the, uh, the Rangers turn the page here, that you know, there's probably a pretty prominent lineup spot for Solak in the future as well, for just the reason you just said that contact rate can bat, uh, you know, second or third in front of, uh, you know, Gallo and Calhoun or something like that. There's, uh, you know, there's, uh, he's going to be a lineup fixture and mainstay for, uh, some time to come, I think. Yes, and as you said, it's going to be at the top of the order, or very likely will be at the top of the order given his plate skills. Moving on to Minnesota, the catching situation went from bad to worse. Uh, Mitch Garver, who's been a huge disappointment this year for his fantasy owners, including me, uh, he's out with an injury. It looks like there's no immediate timetable or chance that he comes back at all in the regular season. Uh, But now they've also lost Alex Avila, which is cutting into the uh, availability of playing time for him. So who's going to get the time behind the dish in Minnesota while they chase a, a playoff seating. Yeah, so for the short term, it's uh, our old friend of Col- Colt Hero from uh, I think the 2019 draft season, uh, Williams Astadio, and his uh, his very unique uh, skill set where he makes contact, you know, something bordering on 100, 100% of the time. Um, it was literally 96% in 2019. It's uh, it's breaking news this week, this year that he's already struck out once needed bats. So his, uh, his contact rate has fallen down to 88%. Uh, but, you know, he makes contact all the time, uh, you know, and, and, you know, that's sort of, especially the catching position, that's enough to prop up his batting average and accumulate some counting stats. So, 
that's uh, not a terrible place if you're uh, not a terrible place to fish if you're looking for catching help in the next 10, 10 to 14 days. Not a bad place to look, but we should also point out that in addition to a near 0% uh, strikeout rate, he also has a near 0% walk rate. This is a guy who goes up there yeah. hacking, and he's just pretty good at it, at least as far as putting the bat on the ball. Yes, and because he puts the bat on the ball a lot and is also you know, another slow-footed catcher, uh, if double plays are a category in your league, he's a nightmare. But if, you, if you're not particularly <laughs> worried about that, it's okay. <laughs> And his hard contact rate, uh, not spectacular, shall we say, yes. as far as that contact goes. rate good, hard contact is a different, different <laughs> It's a together. whole different matter. And Ray, before I let you go, I'd like to ask you about the market pulse column that we run at BaseballHQ.com. I know it comes out on Sundays, so some of the news by the time we talk here at Baseball HQ Radio can be a little bit stale, but also it comes out on Sunday, which means, uh, you know, if, you, if some of the players involved are still in your free agent pool, that'll be this weekend. So, first of all, what exactly is going on in the market pulse column and how is uh, uh, Brad Coleman figuring things out and presenting them? Yeah, I edit this column on every Sunday morning and I'm, uh, I'm partial to it uh, maybe because of that reason. Brad does, does a fantastic job and I, I, I wanted to highlight it here just because I think in this uh, season where you know, we were joking at the top of the show with, about having a lot to talk about, but the news all year long has really just been a fire hose. And Brad's mission here it really is to sort of cull through that in the course of, of what happened over the course of the last week. He uses ownership data from daily daily leagues to break players into tiers, who's being added in shallow leagues, dropped, deep leagues, who's being added and dropped, basically trying to highlight who the market is already moving to who are the players that should be on your radar screen if you're doing your weekly fab on Sunday night. He does a fantastic job with it. Last week, he highlighted Michael Pineda's impending return. And he, he the one thing that helped me a lot is I, I had almost forgotten from the beginning of the trade deadline that Archie Bradley had been traded. So he highlighted uh, Kevin Ginkle as, pro, as the uh, likely closer apparent in Arizona and got that one right. And it really just, you know, he doesn't exactly, it doesn't go as far as to tell you who to bid on, but he gives you the working shopping list to go through and say, these are the guys who should be on my list this week, depending on what my needs are. And what I like about the column is that Brad not only talks about the guys you should be targeting, but also he calls those the bull market. The In the stock market terms, that'd be stocks that are on the rise because everybody wants them. But there's also in the column a bear market. And this is uh, players who are losing shares across fantasy baseball. And uh, just for an example, uh, you mentioned Archie Bradley, for instance, is a guy because he loses the closer role, people are dumping out on him like crazy. And even farther down where you've, start talking about guys who are um, maybe going to become available. You see guys like uh, Joe Jimenez, if you want to, if you want to gamble on that, but you know, he warns you that there's not a lot of possibility for these type of guys as well. So it's a, not only a, here's what's happening, but here's how you should think about it. Exactly. And it, the other thing about it is breaking into tiers like that also, makes the column relevant to people with different league depths. You can sort of, if you read this every week, you sort of learn what, where the guys, the, the free agents in your league are going to be following, whether you have to fish in that pre-market pool in a deeper league or whether you can scroll up and, uh, you know, if some of, if even a couple of the bull market names are going to be available in your league, you sort of get, get acclimated to it. And, uh, you know, it's a credit to Brad that he so consistently, uh, you know, populates those tiers and what lets people uh, 
bend the information as they need to for their own formats. And to wrap up, the pre-marketeer that he talks about is really invaluable because these are guys who are just just kind of floating onto the radar. I mean, you see names like Devin Williams uh, was actually somebody that was uh, talked about earlier in the season here on Baseball HQ Radio, but Daniel Bard, Alex Dickerson, Cabrian Hayes, uh, Ty France, who got uh, a lot of playing time boost because of the trade to Seattle. Guys like that. It's not that you're going to look at all these guys and say, I'm going to grab them all, but it certainly allows you to think about, Here's a, here are some guys that I need to be looking at come my next uh, transaction cycle. Exactly. And the beauty of that is Brad, you know, Br- Brad does a ton of work on this, but he's also not a one-man operation. And he's, it's worth mentioning that he's also leveraging the work of the rest of the Baseball HQ staff. And he's really going through the, the writing and the articles that have been put on the site for the course of the previous week in helping identify those things. You talk about Ty France. He he linked out to our AL playing time tomorrow column where I think it was Jock had uh, you know called out that opportunity that was brewing for France. And you know if you go through the article from Brad every week, he's going to link out to I'm guessing eight or ten other columns from Baseball HQ showing where he picked up some of these nuggets. And if you are the kind of person who only visits the site a couple of times a week, it's a great uh, catch up for anything you might've missed along the way that you need to get up to speed on on Sunday because it's your transaction deadline. Brad Coleman also like one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. Uh, Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) He's just a really genuinely nice guy and a very um, intense guy. Like he's very into what he's talking about. He's really well read and why, and he's just interesting to talk to as well as being fun to talk to. Yeah. Super passionate. And yes, Brad, both Brad and uh, our friend Alex Becky are the embodiments of uh, Midwestern nice. Midwestern nice. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Uh, Ray, East Coast nice and East Coast thorough. Uh, <laughs> thanks very much for helping us out. We'll catch up with you again next week. Uh, don't know if I hope there's this much news, but uh, kind of I do. I like talking about it. No shortage of material. Thanks, Patrick. Have a good week. Ray Murphy is a columnist at BaseballHQ.com and co-general manager of the site, and he's our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we return, it's part two of our feature expert interview with Todd Zola for Masters Ball, Rotowire, ESPN, and MLB Network Radio. More talk with Todd coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. Here comes Roger Maris. They're standing up, waiting to see if Maris is going to hit number 61. Here's the windup. The pitch to Roger, way outside, ball one. And the fans are starting to boo. Low ball two. That one was in the dirt. And the boos get louder. Two balls, no strikes on Roger Maris. Here's the windup. Fastball hit deep to right. It's looking it. Way back there. Oh, Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Todd Zola from Masters Ball, Rotowire, ESPN, and MLB Network Radio. And Todd, you also had an article at Rotowire called The Three-Week Planner, and this was just great stuff. Explain what you did. Normally, you know, I mean, you, we can always look ahead, and you can. You, it's best to look ahead and try to figure out, especially for two, you know, it's a, a guy's going on Wednesday this week. That means he could be a two-star pitcher the following week. I pick him up this week for fewer fab dollars than I would next week, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But with, with three weeks left in the season, 
you know, you, you can make pickups, you can make plans, uh, basically to help you win. So I was actually doing it for my own teams, was kind of looking at schedules. And I said, wait a minute, what am I doing here? Uh, if, I'm, if I'm interested in this, you know, so are you. So is everybody else. So I just put together whatever data I could, what I thought was interesting that I could get. And it just uh, games left, home games, away games, uh, teams that play, uh, teams that pitchers are facing. Um, th- that sort of information. Now, I know other people are actually planning out a pitcher's remaining schedule. Having having done daily notes where we're writing up each pitcher and uh, to me it was it's a, it's a wonderful endeavor. However, it's just so variant. This it's just so uh, you know subject to change. I, I I decided that effort wasn't worth it because it was just going to change so much. Even even for the even for the good pitcher, you know, who's to say that. Um, that, that, you know, actually the Yankees isn't a good example because they may be fighting for a playoff spot, but who's to say Clayton Kershaw makes his last start and all that sort of thing. Uh, so it, it sounds great on paper, but I didn't think actually planning out the pitching schedule for three weeks, uh, was an efficient use of time. The first thing that did jump out at me was the number of double headers that some of the teams yeah. have because they were harder hit by COVID problems earlier in the season. Which teams did you identify as losing a lot of innings because they play seven innings twice instead of 18 innings, so it's a four-inning loss per game pair? Yeah, well, it's the teams that, that actually had the, you know, uh, Miami. Well, Miami's almost caught up, but um, uh, uh, St. Louis is one of the biggies at this point. Because they did, they haven't made up all of their time. They've got, I think they've got ten games next week. Somebody, somebody has ten games next week, which and, and, and with an off day, you know. <laughs> and actually, the off days are, were scheduled. Well, the off day, the off day, the off days were were purposely scheduled. Th- this past week, I think it was Wednesday. There were uh, a few teams had an off day. We go, why? Why do you know? Why do why, the Red Sox happen to be one? Why do the Red Sox have an off day on Wednesday? That's silly. Well, it was to give um, whatever team they had they were facing. I had a bunch of games and they didn't want, they wanted, they want, they, they thought MLB thought it'd be better to have a, that team have a doubleheader on Tuesday and a doubleheader on Thursday and have Wednesday completely off than, than, uh, than play, you know, two, two and one. So they, they moved one of the, they moved that Wednesday game to a doubleheader. So we're seeing, we're seeing a lot of that stuff too. Uh, but the other thing sort of along these lines is, I mean, there's so many repercussions here we can get into, but keep in mind folks that Detroit and St. Louis are only scheduled for 58 games. If the final two games are needed for playoff repercussions, they will make those up, I believe, in a doubleheader on the Monday, you know, Monday, I guess, the 28th. So if everybody plays every game scheduled through Sunday, the final Sunday, the 27th, Detroit and St. Louis are going to be short two games, which is something to keep in mind because you should target, you should target Cardinals because they have so many games left. Well, they got two fewer games, so um, you know, unless those matter for playoffs, and they very well may. But the point being, don't count on them. And uh, the other aspect of that, I think, is that what we're looking at is from here forward, and so the the Cardinals do have more games than everybody else, even if it turns out to be two fewer than everybody else in the grand scheme of things, because what's happened has already happened. You can't go back and and calculate that in, right? It's just we're looking at from today to the end, then St. Louis players do have an advantage from extra games, although they lose some of it because of all those doubleheaders. I'm not... 
that's that's part of it, and I, I don't know the answer, and I don't know that we've had enough doubleheaders yet to check, but everybody's assuming that, you know, I mean, again, what's you know, we, we lost, you lost the ability to play gold, Carl Goldschmidt, you know, for the few weeks, the week that he was out, but now it's great to have him because playing so many games, that assumes that whoever, not just Goldschmidt, but whoever the player is, is going to play both games. The, you know, you, normally you love starting people in doubleheaders because worst case scenario is you play one game and in, in last year in the NL, maybe you pinch it in the second game. Uh, now the downside is six innings. If you're the home team and you're winning after six, you're only getting six, six at bats. Now, if you're winning, you probably scored some runs and, you know, turn the lineup over. But even so, you know, the downside of a, of a doubleheader now is instead of getting you know, nine innings, you, you could only be getting six innings worth of at-bats if you if a guy at the lower end of the order, maybe your catcher, for instance. So I'm not sure that the, the best idea is to go out and get the Cardinals. And uh, at least as of Monday, the Marlins had 25 games left. Philly had 24, Oakland 23, all of the, the teams that were that were sitting out. Um, and, and, and 12 doubleheaders for St. Louis, eight for Miami, 10 for Philly. Again, that was as of Monday. So both of these, all these teams have, you know, eaten into that a little bit, but I don't know. I, I think it may even itself out. And, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to pick up a lesser Cardinal and, and trade or a drop a better on a player on another team. If it's, if it, if it's a tie, if they're equal talent, I guess I'll, the tie will go to the, the teams that are playing more games, but I think it could be a, a somewhat of a risk to, just load up on Cardinals and, and Marlins and, and Phillies, assuming that they get more plate appearances for the rest of the season. And uh, the other side of that is if you look at St. Louis, they're only a half game up, I think, in their race to get a playoff spot. And so I, I wonder if they're just going to say to Paul Goldschmidt and, and guys like that on their roster, you know, suck it up, fellas. We need your yeah. bat in there because well, we're, we aren't going to make the playoffs if you guys are taking every second game of a double sure. hitter off. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there is that. There is that flip side, and not to not just because you can use a guy at DH this year too, right? You can, uh, you can you can use the player at DH. So, I mean, to me, I don't know that there's a definite answer. I think you have to go through it player by player. And you know, Goldschmidt, I think you're right. I mean, he's a horse; he's going to play. Besides, it's just there's no one else to play first. You know, you know, you're not going to put Matt Carpenter there. So there are certain players for sure. But I think a lot of people saying some of the fringe players uh, going through this. Now, on the flip side. Again, this is this is you know narrative on my part, but I'm th- thinking a little bit about it. Are you? I, I'm I'm more apt to if I'm and I don't chase wins. You don't chase wins unless you need wins. Then of course you chase wins. But I I think a pitcher has a better chance. You know a, a, a you know middling to lesser pitcher a better chance of a win in a seven inning game just because if he happens to be leading after five, you you, you get the best setup man. You get the closer. You don't have those two innings worth of soft underbelly of bullpens to blow the lead. So I think it may be an advantage to get some of the pitches. Now, the disadvantage is they may only go three, four, five, in three or four innings because there's only seven innings to cover. So, again, it's kind of, you know, there's a yabat with everything that we come up with. Oh, there's always going to be yabats for sure. Uh, yeah. <laughs> which, which, which teams don't have any doubleheaders down the stretch? Oh, let's see. Consort. This Rotowire staff did such a great job. We shall sort Atlanta, the Cubbies, the Indians, the White Sox, the Royals, the Angels, the Dodgers, the Mets, the Yankees, the Padres, and the Giants, barring a rainout 
do not have any doubleheaders, and they must have already made up their, uh, for lack of a better word, protest game. And a lot of the teams that was within the same series, they were able to play a doubleheader the next day. So, uh, yeah, those are the teams. And of those teams, they all they all have fewer than 20 or fewer games left. I mean, as you know, mentioned Tatis a few times. You know, San Diego has the, uh, you know, they, they, I say only, you know, they only have 18, you know, they're amongst the teams with the fewest number of games left. Uh, so, you know, Tatis is, you know, not saying don't start him. It's just that, you know, you, you've already gotten more out of him, you know, games wise and the players have out of uh, some other, some other teams, the, the, the twins uh, again, and they had a, at least one doubleheader this week. Well, they had an off day as well, but um, they, um, they, uh, they got, they, they, they're done now. They got their doubleheader this week. So they are now down to zero doubleheaders as well. Same with Boston. So do you trade Fernando Tatis for Paul Goldschmidt and hope that the volume Heck no. uh, overdoes the skill? I do not. I do not trade Fernando Tatis for, for Goldschmidt. Nah, I mean, it, it, that, that could be, you know, that's to me, that's sort of the exception. Let's, if there's another, well, we, we can't, we're not going to, we're not, we're not going to go Mitch Moreland because he's not good. But um, if, uh, you know, Freddie Freeman, maybe he's an example. Where does Atlanta fit? Uh, no, Atlanta, Atlanta has, uh, they're in the middle. Um, they have 20 games. So do I trade Freddie Freeman or do I trade, yeah, do I trade Freddie Freeman for Paul Goldschmidt? That's, you know, that's interesting. Well, first, I mean, Goldschmidt isn't producing, you know, isn't producing that well. He's getting on base and on base in points leagues. He could be king, but he's not hitting for the power. And we all know he's not running. Uh, but he's got four homers. He's hitting 330, but he's only got four homers. So, um, but again, you know, one, one three homer game and he's right back. Yeah, it's interesting to start playing those games. It's also risky. Uh, but how can fantasy owners, do you think, exploit this intel, Todd? Um, I think that, well, again, we're probably past trade deadlines yeah. in most leagues. So I think I think you actually hit, you actually kind of alluded to what you can do. Uh, I'm talking, you know, you have it, you have to make your decision. Is it what 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 teams are more likely to play guys in both ends of the doubleheader? And that's teams competing for a playoff spot. So I do think the, the teams that have a lot of game in, in Miami, and it turns out that the teams that we're talking about here do uh, have a lot of uh, have a lot of games of and are competing for the playoffs. Even you know the Marlins, the Marlins are right there. So I think that you know in, in Philadelphia is there too, and even Oakland. So I do think. It, 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 you're not going to, you know, you're not going to pick up gold, Paul Goldschmidt off of waivers. But if you see, uh, I know in ESPN league, Miguel, Miguel Rojas is, is is still on the waiver wire because he was off to such a hot start. But when Miami was, was off, people dropped him. If someone like Rojas is available, absolutely want him um, on Philly. Who's a good example of a, of a, of a player on Philly. Um, uh, what, 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 you know, well, obviously not Rio Muno, but, and they've actually got a couple of couple of injuries. Well, Alec Baum's going to be Alec Baum's going to be uh, going to be picked up. Um, but if if someone, I'd, I'd be looking to pick up fringe Philly players because I think they have a more of a chance to play uh, in both ends. Double headers. Miami, if uh, Brian Anderson happens to be out there, or or uh, you know the, the the mid to lower tier players, if you can happen to get a hold of them, uh, those are the guys I'd look for. 
wonder if Roman Quinn got dropped because he went on the IL and, uh, you know, very, if, went very well, a good opportunity. Yeah. A good opportunity there. Boy, Todd, uh, as usual, uh, it's always so interesting. I feel like we could talk for hours, but of course we all have lives to get back to. And so do our listeners. So I'll, <laughs> I'll just say thanks very much for helping us out again. And I hope we'll get you at the end of the season for our annual postseason roundtable. You, me and Ray can get on, get on together and, uh, and figure out what happened this year. It's a date. Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball, Rotowire, and DSPN, and has a show every Saturday morning on MLB Network Radio. We'll take a quick break and be back with our Baseball HQ commentaries. Hey, Texay! And extra innings coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. Ventura is waiting. McGlinchey staring in, has his sign. A 2-1 pitch. The drive in the air to deep right field. That ball headed toward the wall. That ball is out of here! Out of here! A game-winning grand slam home run! Off the bat of Robin Ventura. Ventura with a grand slam. They're mobbing him before he can get to second base. The Mets have won the ball game. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular commentaries. My Extra Innings comment is coming right up. And leading off, it's Hey Taxi, a commentary on players who are on MLB taxi squads, but who might get enough playing time and production to make them worthy of consideration for your roster. And here with a look at Boston third baseman, Tristan Cassis, is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. Hey Taxi, beep beep. What do you think of Tristan Cassis? You might say that 20-year-old Boston Red Sox third baseman Tristan Cassis knows how to make a powerful statement. According to a recent Nesson report, Tristan Cassis, batting at the Red Sox alternate training site in Pawtucket, was drilled by teammate Tanner Houck. But rather than take first base, Tristan Cassis waited and launched a 436-foot missile on the next pitch into the right center field seats. Wow! Okay, so his on-base percentage might be a problem after refusing a free pass to first. Just kidding. However, the power is real. Tristan Cassis was ranked in the top three in the Class A South Atlantic League in home runs in 2019. And yes, Tristan Cassis's on-base percentage also ranked in the South Atlantic League's top 15 in 2019 as well. In fact, he even ranked in the South Atlantic League's top 15 in walks in 2019, probably much to the chagrin of Tanner Houck. Even so, because of his age and experience, under normal circumstances, we might expect to wait a few years for Tristan Cassis's Major League debut. But who knows? We still have a few weeks left. So hey, Taxi, beep beep, meter's running. Boston's Tristan Cassis is homering again. Pick him up. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his Hey Taxi commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Extra Innings, my comment on baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I'd like to talk about applying Todd Zola's end-of-season research. As Todd and I discussed during our talk earlier in this pod, he had an article in Rotowire this week laying out the game's remaining situation for the last three weeks of the season. The idea, of course, is that some teams have more games left than others, and that fantasy owners can benefit from getting players who have more games left to play. I love ideas like this, and I took this foundation and did a little more research to figure out which teams' pitchers have not only more games, but which teams might have more games or fewer against good and bad hitting teams. 
After all, I figured you might not want to have a pitcher with extra games if they're all against the top offenses, and conversely, you might not mind fewer games if more of them are against powder puff offenses. So here's what I did. I rank all the offenses in Major League Baseball by Team OPS. It's not perfect, I know, but it's a decent enough proxy for offensive production. I then took the top and bottom 25% of the offenses, seven at each extreme, and finally I used Todd's table to sum up the games remaining against top offenses and bottom offenses. Okay, as research goes, it's not exactly an effective COVID vaccine, but it was interesting to me. Let's look at the results. Washington, San Diego, Boston, and Baltimore all faced the top-hitting teams in 50% or more of their remaining games, with Colorado and the Mets in the 40% range. Conversely, the White Sox, Kansas City, the Dodgers, Milwaukee, Minnesota, St. Louis, and Texas, they don't face any top-hitting clubs, and both Pittsburgh and Houston are at 10%. Turning it around, how about facing weak-hitting opponents. St. Louis, the Angels, the Cubs, Detroit, Kansas City, and Houston all get banjo-hitting squads in 50% or more of their remaining games, with St. Louis having 81% of their starts in that helpful tier and the Angels at 72%. And again, going down to the other end of the spectrum, you might want to avoid the 10 teams who have no games left against weak-hitting opposition. Those teams are Atlanta, Baltimore, Boston, Miami, the Mets, the Yankees, Philly, Tampa Bay, Toronto, and Washington. And finally, I checked the differences for each team. That is, it's good games, which are against bad-hitting teams, minus their bad games, which is against good-hitting opponents. The teams you really want down the stretch by this method are St. Louis and Kansas City. The Cardinals have 26 games left, more than any other team. They have no games left against good-hitting teams and 81% left against bad-hitting teams. That's 21 good games out of 26 against easy opposition. The teams to avoid in this scenario, Baltimore, Boston, and Washington, each of whom has 50 percentage points or more of their games left against tough teams than they do against weak ones. Like the Red Sox pitchers need that. My thanks, of course, to Todd Zola for thinking of this in the first place and creating the tables I used to suss all of this out. As Isaac Newton once said, what was that just hit me on the head? No, seriously, Newton famously said, if I have seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. Not that I'm comparing myself to Isaac Newton. I'm more like his cousin, Fig. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt. I have my extra innings commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, September the 18th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 27 of the 2020 Fantasy Baseball season. Of course, I want to thank our guest for this Friday full edition, Todd Zola from Masters Ball, Rotowire, ESPN, and MLB Network Radio. Todd is a good friend of mine and of the show and a really welcome guest anytime he wants to appear. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy. And our Hey Taxi commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, your extra innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on those BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to your podcatcher and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and rating. 
It really does help us find new listeners, and new listeners help us keep the podcast rocking and rolling. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next week with another Friday full edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Wear your mask, stay safe, protect other people, and so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.